Oh, Mike, we're back. It's another episode of YKS. Wait a minute. Or is it? This is happening before the theme song even. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. They must have something up their sleeves. They must have something important they need to tell us about. Yeah, in your case, it's probably armpit hair. Yuck, Rooney. Shave that thing, my man. Up your sleeves. I'm not shaving my armpits. I'm not okay. shaving my armpits. Okay. DB going European. That's fine. Um, gang, it's basically Krimbus time, and we are slagging off. We are... Right now, as you are listening to this episode, we are uh, eating bowls bowls of jelly. What are you supposed to do on Christmas? You have the big cane, the cane of candy. I don't know. I don't know either, man. All these holidays, you know. All the holidays are starting to run together for me. Yeah, I accidentally dyed my beer green on Valentine's Day. Wait a minute, that's not... Oh, dead gummit! I was... So stupid. Okay, um, let me think of a different one. Let me think of a different Hang on, I, I can do a different one. We, I, I, let's start there. I, I hit a bunch of eggs around the house for, now pick another holiday, Veterans Day. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty good. Pretty and it good, scared all good. the veterans. They thought they were IEDs. They, hmm. That's not happy. Hey, but happy Christmas, uh, everyone! It's uh, we're we're gonna take a break. We're not gonna do an episode this week because we're we're lazy. I think. No, reason. I don't think that's true. I think it's okay to do this, and I justify it in my head in a lot of different ways. The important thing is, is that you, if you have not heard this episode, you it may very well be new to you, which is kind of a cool thing, kind of a cool trick to play. Um, this is our, this is a patron episode we did, uh, boy, two, we did this for Mike Tober. So this was three months ago, two months ago now. Oh, wow. Was it that long ago? Yeah, man. You had to have heard it by now. Well, not necessarily. A lot of people are listening to the free stuff, you know, not realizing that every time we get a free download without a Patreon subscription, it's like a knife in my little heart, but that's okay. That's okay, folks. I'll still keep drinking that garbage. Um, but actually we thought this episode was really, really good. We enjoyed talking about, uh, the movie, the dead zone with our friend, Mark Brendel, who is, I mean, look, we have a lot of very smart friends. We have a lot of very engaging and thoughtful friends and actually we don't, but Mark is right up there, uh, with the best of the best in terms of who, who do you want to get your knowledge from? I say, number one, the Bible, right? Number two, Donald yeah. Trump. Encyclopedia Britannica, number three. Oh, you know what? I fucking went to the Encyclopedia Britannica page the other day because I was like, you know what? Because it's been ingrained in my head that Wikipedia... You had, a, you had a book report on the Great Whale. Okay. Yeah, I, I could have just looked at your genealogy report for that. Okay. Um, All right. All right. Fuck off, dude. All right. <laughs> I went on the Encyclopedia Britannica page because I've, I've, I've been told, you know, th when we were kids, Wikipedia was so bad. You can't do because anybody can edit it or whatever. It's all junk on there. You're not allowed to use it. And that's fine. Don't use it as an academic source. I get it. But every time I click on it, I feel guilty. Like I'm not getting real information. And so I was like, I'll go on Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's just Wikipedia with like ads and shit. It sucks. Yeah. They fell off. They fell off. They don't even do CD-ROMs anymore, you know? Oh, man, I can remember that. Having to put a CD-ROM in the drive if you wanted to access information. <laughs> Why don't I just blow my head off, you know? <laughs> and we did, a lot of us back a then. A lot of us did. A lot of us Huge did. problem. It was really bad. 
Uh, but now we have the internet, we have Wikipedia, we have our friend Mark Brendel to uh, introduce us to culture and explain things to us. And I gotta say, the Dead Zone has gotten even more relevant since we watched it in October. I, I going into going into this movie, uh, I had no idea what it was all about. You may not know what it's about either, um, if you're like me and a guy who doesn't know a lot of stuff. But I really, I mean, now people can just post the pictures from post a screenshot from the movie about basically whatever, right? About Trump not accepting the election results, you know? Um, yeah. It just what, and it just feels so good to get to get in on this reference, and I really enjoy it. I'm very happy I did this. It feels like I learned <laughs> something, even though all I did was watch a movie. Isn't that fucked? Yeah. <laughs> that's how that's low how the I bar learned. is. That's how I, well, that's how a lot of people just get their news. That's how I get my news. It was a huge Star War apparently a little while ago. Yeah. I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna watch the. I'm gonna watch the show. I know you've already looked up what happened and decided it sucked, but I. I'm gonna watch the show. And my wife will not watch it with me. Um, I doubt Brendel will watch it with me. But I'm just going to sit down and watch it. We have plenty of time. I can watch that show, right? What's what's keeping me from watching the show? Uh, you talking about Mandalorian? Yeah. yeah. I started watching it. Um, I started watching it on your Plex, actually. Uh-oh! Okay. A little behind the scenes here. But uh, I watched like five episodes of it. And you know what it is? It's just like, hey... I need to, you know, find this guy, and it's like, yeah, I'll tell you where the guy is, but you gotta go kill this guy, you know? Yeah. It's like RPG, the show, side quest, the show. Yeah, it is. It's like, by, by like, episode six or something, I'm like, there's no way he's gonna wiggle his self out of this one, <laughs> and then, and then nevertheless, he does. The Mandalorian, you mean? Yeah. That's cool. Well, maybe I will, because I like side quest, the show, I like The Witcher, that's kind of like side quest, you know? That's all it is. That's all this shit yeah. is. Just pass the fucking time. Just pass yeah. the time. It looks nice. Yeah, you know? it looks it looks good. They look like they took it. So you know what? A lot of people worked hard on it, and that's what's really important about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of people worked hard on the Dead Zone too, and I really liked it. Um, Mike, uh, not to spoil things, I think we both I think we both gave it pretty high scores. Um, I suggest if you haven't seen it, set set your family aside, maybe watch it, and then come back and listen to this episode. Um, and, and really, and really, and really just think, you know, use your brain. It sucks to use your brain sometimes because there's a lot of stuff in there we don't like to see, huh? But if you train it on a good piece of art, I think you will, uh, reap the rewards. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And the movie's good too. Did you say that? Did you say that already? The only rewards Mike has ever reaped are on his PetSmart keychain, my friends. Um, and that's the God's honest truth and a great slam on Mike. So, uh, now we present to you, um, oh shit, I should have looked up the season. What was the season? Uh, this was last season. We do a really bad job of this. Um, Truly doesn't. I mean, nobody's keeping track. You think think, anybody's keeping track of this at all? Okay. Well, I think, I think somebody probably is. Hey, shout out to, uh, James in Edinburgh for a, a Merry Christmas and everyone else gets to have one too, but this one is, uh, we got a DM. Why would you say that? Huh? Why would you say that? Why would you single someone out like that? He's just a friend of mine. What's wrong with you? I just wanted to say... What? Yeah. That's real. (laughs) Um, Everyone else gets a nice Christmas, too. That's fine. This is from Season 12, Episode 3. It's called The Dead Zone with Mark Brendel. We thought uh, we would name it that, and it makes a lot of sense. This is released from behind the paywall with this exclusive intro commentary now, collector's item. Everybody, enjoy the show, and we'll see you back next week. Have a good whatever. 
you are either in possession of a very new human ability or a very old one. You know what God did for me? You Everybody, welcome to YKS Premium Mike Tober episode three. JF and Mike here uh, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Mike, uh, how are you doing over there, my friend? Every day is, uh, you know, just one after the next. Just they just keep coming. So, <clears throat> and let's how are you? How are you? How are you doing? Yeah, Mike, I'm doing. Uh, I don't want to say I'm doing really good because the contrast between what you just sounded like and what I sound like will be yeah. awkward for the listener. So I'll just kind of bring it down a few notches and say, "Oh, I guess I'm doing okay." I get it there, bud. You know, still breathing. Um, still above ground. Another fun way to say it. Um, either way, you kind of get the idea. But this week, are we all really above ground? That's one of the questions we'll dive into with this uh, this episode of Mike Tober. We've got a very a very scary, a very scary film and a very special guest. You already heard his theme at the top of the show. What a flex, bringing your own theme to the program. And you'll hear it again on the way out as well. Because uh, joining us today, we've got our friend, the wonderful writer, Mr. Mark Brendel. Hello, Brendel. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me back on. Thank you so much, Hello. Brendel. Um, we're doing this movie. Now, mm-hmm. we're doing this movie. Is that First of all, is that right? <laughs> you didn't say what movie is. We're doing the dead zone. First of all, is that right? Is that the first of all? Is that the right movie that we did? Yes, or that's no? the movie I watched. I don't know if it's right. Okay. Okay. Yes, we're doing the Dead Zone movie, and when we had, I guess, when we had originally conceived of doing Mike Tober, the idea was sort of, okay, Mike, you come up with some of the shit that you like, and then you force it on. <laughs> see, see, look, see, I was thinking about this before, <laughs> like two days ago. I was like, even with something called Mike Tober, which is supposed to be all movies about me, I can't even, I can't even, I have to let people say what's your thing, and then bring them on. I can't even have my own thing. That's right. Yeah, there's maybe a little <laughs> psychology there to dig into, but really not for me. I'm, it's you know, it's not my job. Um, but that was sort of the idea. But you know what? I think it's worked out great. We've got people bringing stuff that they're passionate about, and honestly, even the stuff that you and I are passionate about, it's sort of just like a. I mean, really, what do we fucking get up for? Are we sitting in the fucking bleachers waving a towel when we watch our favorite movie or whatever? I mean, yeah. not really. Yeah, you know. So yeah. I think it's good, and uh, we talked to Brendel about doing this, and he brought to us The Dead Zone, which I had uh, candidly not heard of, um, but Brendel, why don't you uh, explain what it is about this movie that uh, that stuck in your mind as something you want to talk about on the show? Yeah, cool. Uh, I mean, this is, Mike, you do like this movie, though, right? This isn't just some random movie. 
I like it. It's a it's a Stephen King uh, film, like Jesse and I were talking about. It's a it's it's one of those uh, classic '80s Stephen King joints. You know, it's a uh, I don't know. It's the Dead Zone. You can't. How do you explain the Dead you, Zone? You can't like, swing uh, a dead cat without hitting something that Mike would like. So it's not just because it <laughs> just because it wasn't the first thing that came to his mind doesn't mean that it's not appropriate for Mike Tober. It's yeah. like. Well, that, that's what's great about the Mike Tober thing and having everybody come on and do all their favorite things is that everybody likes all the same crap I like, like uh, Liddy Burrell, The Wicker Man. I like that film. That's a great film. That was a good episode. You couldn't come on and you couldn't you couldn't bring something on and talk about it, and I would I would hate it. It would. That's what Jessuary was about. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mike Tober. Okay. Yeah. Well, even though I did pick the movie, I since it is Mike Tober, I feel like Mike has sort of undersigned this, so he's he's the one who's responsible for the movie choice. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Despite um, me picking it. Um, so, yeah, The Dead Zone, uh, I've seen it a few times. It's a movie I really liked. Um, you know, I listened to the Chris James episode about Scanners, which is also a Cronenberg movie, and I really liked that. I thought that, um, you know, you guys did a really good job covering that one. This is from a, a very similar period, uh, two years later. And uh, what I like about it is that I like all of Cronenberg's movies. I think he's a really great director. Um but, you know, in this period of time when he was doing these movies between like The Brood and Naked Lunch, it was mostly about body horror. You know, this is kind of what you talked about is that he's known for being gross or whatever, doing, uh, you know, the, the gory special effects. Um, the Dead Zone is sort of a departure from that. And it's a departure from Cronenberg stuff in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of things about it that are sort of anomalous to his career. Um, it's, you know, very there's very little gore in The Dead Zone. There, there's some, uh, you know, notably like the suicide of the, of the serial killer, but for the most part, it's, it's more about, uh, it's a very cerebral movie, right? It's a thinker. Um, so, so I think that that, which, which a lot of his movies are, but it doesn't have the kind of body horror side of it that, that the rest of them do. Um, it's also one of the first movies that he made. I think that, uh, he did not write himself. This had a screenwriter that came in, obviously it was an adaptation of Stephen King's. Right. Uh, you know, it's not like an original story, but um, he did not write it. And it was also, you know, this is produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Um, I don't know how much you guys know about him, but he's he's kind of had his hands in a lot of different movies and has screwed up several of them. He's uh, the guy who's kind of responsible for the big Dune debacle. Why that movie got so fucked up. was Right. Yeah. So he's like one of those, you know, arrogant executive producer guys who uh, likes to meddle with the creative stuff. And he did so here. Uh, you know, so Cronenberg uh, uses a guy named Howard Shore to do all of his music, but instead of Howard Shore, uh, he had to use a studio producer for this. So he has a score by Michael Kamen, who's a, a great uh, composer and arranger of music, but it's not, you know, Cronenberg's guy. So he said, sorry, your friend has to, you know, uh, wait outside. You're, we're going to use the, the company man. Yeah, and he actually did, and he waited outside as well, and that was actually one of the more terrifying aspects of the film. I mean, production was troubled. It took a long time, and the guy was just, you know, yeah. tough. Standing out there the whole time. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this, so this, so this, like you said, this just, this did come out in the early 80s, 1983, um, and I've got some just comps here to put it in context for people like me who are like, I want to know... Give me the receipts on this thing. That's the number one most important thing to me is the receipts. <laughs> what, what what did it do business wise? You know, yeah. um, so it came out in eighty three. Uh, it made about uh, twenty million dollars at the box office. So that's not a. T- I mean that that's not Iron Man numbers. But I, I mean, it probably sounds like a lot to you guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but 
let's put it in context for 1983. So also releasing in 1983, we've got Star Wars Episode Six as we now know it, right? So we got Return of the Jedi coming out. Great film, great film. Surprised it wasn't on the list for Miketober, but that's okay. Maybe next year. Uh, Trading Places yeah. and E.T. as well, also uh, coming out in 1983. Big year. Um, but in horror... Um, you know whether you want to call this a horror or not. I guess we can get into that. But if if you if you look within the horror genre, uh, you got Jaws 3D and Psycho 2 uh, were the top two entries um, in the genre that year. 42 million and 32 million uh, respectively. And then the Dead Zone's right there. So the Dead Zone number three highest grossing horror movie of the year. Kind of surprising, I felt like in retrospect. Well, I think that it has the Stephen King bump, so I think that attaching his name to it, which they did, uh, he has, did a few uh, of those, right? Yeah, I mean, you get you get yeah. a lot of audience just from that because his books were already popular at that time. So, um, but but also like I mean, well, like, the movie well, cost like uh, Needful Things uh, wasn't that in the theater? Needful Things. Who's going to the theater seeing Needful <laughs> Things without Stephen King's name attached to it? <laughs> right. Nobody. Right. Uh, I mean, it only cost one. so. So I mean, it made twenty million, but it only cost like ten million to make, right? So it effectively yeah. like doubled its money. So it's again, um, you know, not a high budget movie. There's not a lot of things in it that look expensive, and 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 to me, that's one of the charms of the movie. Actually, is that when you go back to watch a movie from this period, like early '80s or '70s or something, you, you can really get that atmosphere of of what it's like there. And I feel like the Dead Zone does that really well, especially with the interiors of the houses, the decorations and in, inside the houses. Um, it's a yeah. it's a very sort of frozen in time movie of a very certain kind of class of people in this in this uh, you know um, upper eastern uh, town or towns I guess because he moves around but um, yeah I, I think it just has a great mood to it all the way through uh, from start to finish yeah you got the snow on the ground you got the Michael Kamen score it's just very yeah. very cool I think so too and I think one of the cool things about it is that despite being a Stephen King movie and yeah of course it definitely is of that place in time. But it doesn't just feel like a completely like one of those author insert things that Stephen King always does where it's like, oh, this is just in bumfuck Maine again. Like, here we go. This is like his life. This is something he remembered one time. Yeah. And it's like it doesn't yeah. it's still in New England, but it's not like you don't get introduced to all of the fucking characters in the city that he like went to in his vacation house or whatever the fuck. Like, I just yeah, don't like care we about saying, that like, shit. Like Salem's, Salem's Lot yes. just uh <laughs> I mean, all of them are just like directly. Yeah. Oh, here's the old the old mailman's down the block. Like all this fucking slice of life shit that he does in all his movies. I just I tire of it, and it's not in this, and and it's it's cool. It's a different feel, and I guess it's. I mean, I don't know if that's Cronenberg or if that's just the way this one played out, but it's better, I think. Well, I think that to me, it's like the Dead Zone is like the perfect split between a what you would maybe say is a classic Cronenberg movie, like his auteur movie, and a mainstream film. Like it's it's right in the middle there in a good way to me. I think that it, it can, you can watch the dead zone and enjoy it and be over with it and forget about it and, you know, watch it again the next day or whatever. Like, I mean, it's one of those movies that you can watch uh, and enjoy, but it also like, if you take your time with it, there's a, there's an awful lot going on in it. Um, That's exactly so. what I was, I was telling Mike before we got started. I was like, I watched this movie and um, it, I, you know, I know I know Brendel pretty well, I feel like. So the whole time I was trying to figure out, like, what is what's Brendley about this? You know, last week uh, when we did The Wicker Man, you know, with, with Lydia Burrell, I was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And then they like burst into song a whole bunch of times. I was like, OK, I get what this guy likes about this, obviously. Right. And with this one, it was it was hard for me to figure out. So I'm ex I'm excited to hear you uh, say what some of the stuff lurking beneath is, because that to me is the the quintessential Brendel property of it. But 
for for me, I think I am I am and I did enjoy it uh, in the way that you described, which is I sat down and watched it and I told Mike, it's like, it feels like a Saturday afternoon feature on cable TV. And you're like, well, I can digest this pretty easily. And I guess maybe on TV, you don't get some of the nastier parts, um, even though there aren't very many. Um, and then you just go, okay, well, that's that. And I get to move on. It was kind of a, co- a couple of cool performances and reminded me of a time that doesn't really exist anymore. And then you just go on about your day. And um, this was pretty cool. Pretty cool, I thought. But um, let's uh, let's get into the storyline just a little bit, um, if you'll indulge me so people can uh, track along with us. So uh, we start out, uh, we start pretty quick because it's a short movie. It's what, like an hour and a half. Um, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not overly long. Um, so we're introduced to John Smith. Great classic name, um, Christopher Walken's character. I think they wanted to change that, but uh, the the producer wouldn't let him change it. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, So he's a school teacher, uh, and he's in love with a fellow school teacher, Sarah, uh, played by Brooke Adams. Um, And the first thing I saw is like, wow, you, Christopher Walken looks young, and I mean, he still looks like a weird guy, but he's young. He's got hair on his head. He's you know. He's all he dressed looks, up. He looks especially weird to me at the beginning of the movie. Like when, in, when, when he's supposed to be in his normal life, like this is all before the sort yes. of drama happens. He looks so bizarre with the like Lloyd Christmas bangs and the, <laughs> the, the weird boxy glasses and uh, his, I don't know. It's just, it's very bizarre because, you know, he's a guy who's known uh, uh, Christopher Walken, who's known for, you know, playing weird, weird roles because he's a weird guy. Yeah. And so I think that the weirdest part of this movie for me is him trying to like, I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's intentional, but like trying to be normal in the very beginning. Like, he's weirder in that part than he is in yeah. the rest of the movie to me. His crazy ass hair in this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you know what he looks like to me? Like, um, he looks like at the beginning when he's the school teacher and he's in the front of the class going like, okay, class, it's don't forget to read, you know, and he was doing his little bit or whatever. He looks like, um, like the opening of an SNL sketch. Where it's like, as soon as we open on the scene, the audience starts laughing because it's like, look at him. He looks funny. <laughs> He's just standing yeah. there trying to be like a normal guy. Yeah. Um, and SNL is so funny. We talk about that. <laughs> well, yeah, let's not. An hour instead. Let's not get derailed on that. Well, I mean, there is. So there is an SNL tie in in that. I don't know if you, I forgot the name of the guy, but there's some skit that's like, uh, you know, somebody's name and it's like a trivial psychic and it's a play and it's Christopher Walken plays it when he's on SNL. And it's a play off of this movie where he can foresee the future, but it's only very like unimportant things that he can foretell. Oh no, so, I didn't know that. I didn't see that. One. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good skit actually. It's from <laughs> it's from it's from like the '90s, I think. So it's you know, it's yeah. pretty good. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's funny. But um, that's enough SNL. You see the? Did you guys see the one where Chris Kattan is like um he's like a mango guy? He's like a little mango guy. Did you see that he's one? A he's mango like a mango guy. <laughs> they're such geniuses like you wonder how they come up with it like, there's so much talent and, yeah uh, yeah you know, innovation wow you just bring the mango guy back um <laughs> so he uh so he's he's in love with this uh with his fellow school teacher here and some very now this is some very kingish writing here where he's like he's showing the like the trappings of being a teacher in this town and he's like uh Oh, we're they're like flirting. He's like, I want you to hold my books or whatever. Just like the very 1950s. I don't, I don't know what you. I don't know if it's like an anachronism necessarily, but a lot of times I feel like with King, what he'll do is like bring the 50s and 60s into the 80s and 90s a little bit, and it's just that weird, like snow globe effect, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I, with the way that I described it when I watched it this most recent time was that it's it's like melodrama. It's like a movie from the fifties. Yeah, where where you see them and you have the, the you know Cayman score is very uh, orchestral, and so you have uh, all the elements of of what is essentially melodrama, and and that's how the first part of the movie plays out up until the accident. And I and I think that that's you know it, it's both tongue in cheek because again this is Cronenberg who knows what he's doing. He's very funny. He's very uh, jaded. Like he's not making you know what I mean. Like he knows what he's doing. But again, to slip anything interesting into a mainstream movie, you have to do so very subtly because uh, there are so many hands in the pie and so many people who can tell you not to do something or whatever. Uh, everything is decided by committee or by some you know rich asshole who doesn't know what he's doing. So for him to get this by, I think that um, you know he had to play it a little close to the chest. So I think that the opening is very, is intentionally melodramatic uh, to to sort of co- contrast with the later. Uh, reveal of of what his life is going to be and i think that plays into the theme of what his power does for him is it shows him you know sort of a reality that's underneath the um one that he that most people see in the world yeah but we also like i i agree with you it, it does seem melodramatic but i'm also viewing it through a 2020 lens so like when i there's there's several laugh lines for me in the very beginning before the accident like you said like walking himself is very funny when they get on the roller coaster and he's like, before he gets the headache, um, he's like excited and in a very Christopher Walken voice, he's like, ah, like going down the <laughs> roller coaster. That's fucking funny. Um, <laughs> when she invites him in on the on their date uh, at the doorstep and he's like, some things are worth waiting for. Just the phrase "worth waiting for" is very funny to me now, and I don't know if it was then at any point. Um, right. And right up until the accident, uh, the accident itself is very funny. So he's yes. he's she's like. I mean, she's foreshadowing extremely hard. Like, please come in. Don't go, you know. And Well, he, I, it's like the opposite of the typical horror, uh, you know, mechanism, which is that it's when the two people actually decide to have sex that the that the killer comes. Yeah. Over. <laughs> right. And so that's that's their punishment. But this, this, <laughs> this is the this is the punishment for this guy. He doesn't for have not it. getting it in. Wrong. Yeah. Right. I also think that there's something interesting about the chronology of this, which is that he experiences symptoms of, of something being wrong with him before the accident, right? Right. I, I believe in the book that the idea is that he has a brain tumor that is killing him yeah. and causing his psychic powers. Now, I haven't read the book, um, and that is not in the movie at all about that. The the doctor the doctor says, I th- feel like he says something to the effect, or, or or it's getting stronger and it's making me weaker or something like that. Somebody, I feel like... Yes, it's, it's, it uh, is really, I mean, and, and maybe this is what it was, is that essentially just the final cut of the movie, like, combined two ideas, maybe? Um, because the headache really yeah. comes out of nowhere, and there's, no, there's nothing else that ties it together other than what the doctor says later, which is, like, as Mike points out his health is starting to fail and the doctor assumes this inverse relationship between his health and his powers. And then also makes a reference at one point to either discovering a new power or a very old one. And maybe that's an inference that, you know, we should be saying, okay, there's something else going on, but they don't, they don't flesh it out at all. Well, I mean, so I think that the, the, that line is such a great line. In fact, the doctor has some of the best lines in the whole movie. Yeah. He, uh, you know, to me, what he's saying is he's saying, you know, either you have discovered psychic abilities or you're conning me. <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so he's saying, yeah, you know, either you're lying or you, you have these powers or whatever. So I, I do like the way that that was phrased. Um, I didn't get that at all. I thought he was really making like a reference to like, because like in King's, in King's overall mythology, there's like these, I mean, there's not like a shared universe between his stories, 
But there are hints that some of the universes might be shared, right? So he's like, he does seem to at times maybe accidentally or whatever build in these ideas that there is like crossover between some of these characters and some of the um, some of the effects. Like I think in it is maybe one in particular where I mean all of it happening in Derry, for instance, or or stuff like that. And I I thought I really thought that was just like a straightforward reference to oh there are other people like you, like X Men style. There are other people like you, or there are other powers like this. And he reaches into the medical literature. Which I mean is kind of absurd, uh, but that's that's what I thought it was. But you're right; I guess it does read as a joke. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like a it's supposed to be a wry quip. Um, but I, you know, the doctor is is an interesting character because. Uh, but but going back to the beginning before the accident, so I think that the roller coaster is is your typical sort of uh, you know metaphor for uh, destiny or or predestination, and that you are on the rails. You know, you can't control where you're going. You're being taken somewhere by something else. Um, yeah, and him having the the headache on the roller coaster sets up sort of a like a logic loop because the reason you could you could say the reason why he doesn't stay to uh you know stay the night at, at the woman's house is because he had this episode and he's feeling scared or whatever it is. Right. But again, it is also that which leads him into this accident. So the whole movie, all the way through, there is this play between destiny, like things being predetermined, uh, really unbelievable coincidences happening. And the idea of free will of being able to interfere with that. I mean, that's ultimately the theme of the movie, I think. And and what? Yeah, right. Like the 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 sign, the billboard going up across the street from his house and everything. And and, and right. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, there's so many examples. I mean, I wrote I wrote down like yeah. all of the different destiny type things. Like, yeah, him him <laughs> running into his his uh, ex girlfriend in a different town because they happen to be yeah. canvassing. Yeah. You know, him watching TV right when the sheriff is saying the thing that's like directed to him. I mean, there's so many instances like that. And I think that it's, it's, it's playing with this idea of what is determined and what is open for us to change. Yeah. The, the, the whole film is kind of like, I wrote down as hinting about, you never know if it's a real premonition, if he has actual powers or if it's like a string of incredible coincidences that keep happening, like his girlfriend showing up in the new town or whatever, like he said. Yeah. Yeah. If it were a movie about any other premise, you would think this is just extremely sloppy <laughs> plotting. <laughs> but right. yeah, a lot of it at least does seem to be um, intentional. Um, but so that accident that they set up, uh, I, and one of the other things that really made me laugh is how long the milk tanker skids down the road. <laughs> I yes. don't know. If... God, that's so funny. <laughs> The guy, <laughs> the guy is driving the milk tanker uh, in the middle of the night, which is just, I mean, that itself is funny, um, and falls asleep at the wheel and skids off the road and jackknifes and the the back of the truck full of full of what else but that classic milk starts right. skittering down the road. And, I, and, then, and then the guy hits it. And it's well, like, it's, uh, at one point it skids up a hill. <laughs> it's just like slowly moving up the hill and then down yeah. again. <laughs> again. So again. Like to me, I think it's better to be read metaphorically in that this is again something coming up from out of nowhere ahead of you that you can't avoid that you see and and it's too late by the yeah. time you see it. You know, physically, like realistically, it is totally absurd and very very funny. Yeah, and and I think even the heaviest handed metaphor of all is of course the milk, which is a very kind of Cronenberg touch. Yeah, um, uh, because he's very interested in like birth and uh, you know the the biological processes of the body and stuff, and so I, I think that it definitely plays into this idea of him, you know, being if you will reborn into this having these powers and living this different life. Yeah, and and he does. So he after that he he wakes up uh, in a hospital or a clinic under the care of Doctor Sam Wyzak. Uh That's when he finds out he's been in a coma for five years. Um, his girlfriend that he had planned to marry, Sarah, is now married herself uh, with a son. 
Um, and his mother, who is now like ill herself or crazy or both, um, has sort of become like a religious convert. Um, and he's obviously kind uh, nonplussed uh, with that news. And uh, then we, in just a few minutes, we get like a sort of a teaser of his first uh, vision, basically. So the nurse comes in to wipe his forehead. He reaches out and grabs her, and which I mean. It's a, it's a, it's again, this is a funny, I think this is the, maybe the unintentionally funny part, which is the noise of the vision and the face that Walken makes when he's having the visions. Um, I, I should have fucking had the noise queued up. Maybe I'll try to grab it, but it's a very like stark noise and a contrast with everything else that's going on. And he looks, sounds, yeah, it's, I got it here. It's 69. <laughs> I think that's it. I mean, that is very funny. Uh, that's not how I heard it. Um, I was, I had headphones on, um, <laughs> yeah, it's but, like a violin stab. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he sees that the nurse's daughter, um, is in a house fire and he says, there's still time. There's still time. And she runs out and I guess, I don't, I don't really know what happens there. Somehow the kid gets saved. Seems like it was running out of time. I mean, the water in the fish bowl boils up and then the bowl, it seems like maybe she's on the way out, but anyway, she's saved. And, um, and so that's sort of his first uh, vision. He has one with the doctor right after that as well. Yeah, if I can say one thing about the doctor thing, like uh, if you've watched a lot of Cronenberg movies, you'll know that like the doctor-patient relationship is very important to him. He has several, several movies where that is very prominent. Um, you know, you, t- you guys mentioned The Brood when you were doing the Scanners episode. And, you know, The Brood takes place in a clinic of sorts, and the guy is like a, you know, mm-hmm. crazy psychologist or whatever. Scanners has the company where he has the doctor, Patrick McGowan's character. Um, yeah. you know, Dead Ringers is about a pair of gynecologists. And uh, then he, you know, in his later career, he did that movie, A Dangerous Method, which is about Freud and Jung um, specifically, like an, like an actual biopic of that. So, so you know that Cronenberg has like a, an interest in this um, doctor-patient relationship that comes up so often in his movies. Hmm. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. And the doctor is, I mean, the doctor is, pro- the doctor sort of takes on a role as like not just his primary care, but also as like a mentor at some point um, right. later the in the voice- film. Yeah, what what they would say in like psychology is the the voice of somebody who's supposed to know. Yeah, this is the guy who has the who who has the if you will the ethical knowledge, and, and he's the person who is who he who Walken brings his ethical conundrum to, is to you know to ask him this. And the the doctor is also a really interesting character in the sense that he is a I don't I don't know if you would say, if you can say he's a Holocaust survivor, but he's a, he survived World War Two. Right. You know, the, the vision that that uh, Johnny has of him is of him fleeing uh, what I guess is Poland or maybe Germany. Uh, during World War II, and he he believes that his mother is dead, uh, you know, but she actually survived, and that's that's the information that Johnny passes on to him. But but what this does is it sets the doctor up to be in a very um, specific position for the later part of the movie, where he is asked this right. hypothetical about Hitler, um, and it, you know it, it's it's something that they plant the seed for, like you say, it's one of his first uh, uh, visions is is the doctor. Uh, and I think that that pays off later in the movie, because when you really consider the stakes of this movie and not only state the stakes, but like what it is that they're saying in the movie, how many movies do you know of where the hero of the movie is what he needs to do is assassinate a politician. And that's a good guy doing, he's doing <laughs> right, it for yeah. a good reason. Right. So, yeah. so I think that, you know, there's, there's, like I said, there's a lot going on in this movie that is maybe not quite as apparent on first viewing, but um, you know, for instance, like, like, not to skip ahead too far, but the serial killer is a is a cop. That that's a twist that you don't need to put in there. It didn't need to be a cop. Like, it could right. have just been a serial killer, and it could have had the same basic thing. 
But I think that what the point of this is, is that, it, you know, the reason why the police couldn't catch the serial killer isn't because they didn't have this arcane knowledge. It's because they're not looking at themselves. They have a blind spot where they can't see their own activity. And this is the same thing that's true for yeah. Stilson, right? Or of politicians in general. So I think that, you know, the doctor being the World War II survivor who has the lived experience of uh, having to flee from fascism and the sort of evil and death that can be wrought by the state uh, is is the perfect person to answer that question later in the movie when Johnny has to make up his mind what to do. Yeah, and and I think, uh, yeah, and this is, this is towards the end, but it does add sort of, <clears throat> I think maybe some much-needed gravitas to what, again, from our perspective, would seem like a very corny or silly hypothetical to now be dealing with. I mean, we've had a decade of just stupid jokes about it on Twitter alone, uh, to say nothing else of, of everything else that's going on around us. Um, so it would seem really silly. But yeah, having this vision with the doctor does set that up to be like an actual functional question for which there does need to be a legitimate answer, because that's like the plot of the movie. I mean, something has to happen right. in order to keep things moving. Um, and uh, the so the doctor is an important uh, part. Um, he actually... It's not just, yeah, it's not just a mentor, but he also is sort of like a conduit uh, for Johnny uh, with the public because he then goes on to, after he confirms Johnny's vision of his uh, mother still being alive um, and then doesn't talk to her at all, um, I think somewhat crucially, he then calls a, like a press conference um, to to display his psychic abilities, right? Right. Um, Which is a funny scene. but also we've we've got an, we've got another character here that himself is very funny as well. There's a hotshot reporter who's going to be the skeptic, who I think maybe in other times would be an audience stand-in. But in this case, we know what's actually going on. We know that he's he's actually going to be wrong, and is I mean he has some stuff revealed on stage that he immediately hates, and <laughs> and I guess legitimizes Johnny in the eyes of everyone because after this he becomes something of a cult figure, right? Right. Yeah. I mean he gets all that mail and stuff. Yeah. So. The, the press conference is really funny yeah. with the idea that, you know, I feel like there's a certain naivete to Johnny where he doesn't quite understand how things work yet. And so he goes off of these assumptions that and, and I think you can kind of see that in the relationship with his parents, like his parents are very are portrayed as very sort of like, uh, you know, simple, like salt of the earth type people. And he has a good relationship with them. They obviously are a loving family and, and all this. And so he has a certain like uh, sheltered worldview. Um, with, and you know, I mean, it's so absurd to think like that you could have a press conference about something like this and accomplish anything positive in any way. Um, but, but I do like the, uh, I, I love the guy, you know, saying you fucking freak. I I love that line. (laughs) Yeah. He went from zero to 60 really fast. (laughs) Yeah. On camera and everything. Yeah. It's really good. Maybe I'm imagining it, but doesn't he also like take his jacket off as he strides up to the, like, ah, I'm going to show this motherfucker. He can't read me or it's a psychic as fake or something. I think he's like, really? It's another, it's another example of one of these hotshot little reporters, uh, weasels from Clinton news network <laughs> all, you see all over the place. Yeah. Liars <laughs> spilling bile out of their mouth left and right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's the only bile in the film. Interestingly, um, for a Cronenberg, um, <laughs> But uh, so his mom is watching this on TV and then just falls over, basically has a heart attack and then later dies uh, when he visits her in the hospital. And that sort of ends the first what I from what I read, it is sort of conceived in triptychs. So this is sort of the end of the first act, I guess, is what we would say. Um, And the next part is dealing with the serial killer you referenced earlier, which I thought was going to take the film in a completely different direction. But of course, then there's the third uh, act as well, which which, you know, goes in a different way altogether, uh, which is kind of cool. Right. 
And I, and I think that this is a linear, like it, it is, it isn't just like there's these three separate episodes. I think it is a progression from one thing to the next, because in the first thing you have to get into the, you know, oh, how did he get his powers? What do his powers do? How do they work? The second thing is like, okay, well, what do I do with them? And then the third one is a little bit more complicated because I, I feel like it goes from, you know, you know, one of the reasons why the dead zone kind of blends in so easily with, with the background is because it is one of the first movies where this uh, very, very heavily trod ground was, was done. So you, you know, looking back in 2020, we have a billion movies that have done this premise, a billion TV shows that have done this premise. Uh, but this is one of the first ones. And uh, so it's easy to forget that. I think watching backwards through all of the things that have been made since then. Yeah. But, but, but one of the things that's most interesting to me about the way that this one does it is that, um, you know, the idea of a psychic helping the police is, uh, you know, just a, a staple of, uh, like television entertainment. Um, you know, it, it's just a, one of the most common storylines involving psychics is that they are helping the police to solve a crime. And I think it's very funny. Like when you step back and consider it in reality of what the police are, what they do, and of a psychic who has powers that are supernatural beyond the ability of anything that we've ever heard of before for them to be like, what I'm going to do is go to the police station and see if I can help these guys out do, doing what they do is, is, you know, insane uh, when you really think about it. So what I like about this movie is not only is it that when he does help the cops, he turns out that he finds out the cops are the problem themselves, but his next, the third act is about, not it's about going against the law like yeah like challenging the state or yes. whatever attacking the state or yeah i mean yeah. doing basically one of the most illegal and, and violent things that you yeah. can do uh and so so i think that that progression but arguably one of the most coolest things <laughs> you can do. <laughs> yeah certainly in the context of this film only of course <laughs> um, right yeah uh, so in the second part, he is, yeah, he's dealing with the police because he has gotten famous. He's moved in with his father after his mother passes away. Um, he is visited by uh, Sheriff, let's see, Bannerman, I think is his name, uh, played yeah, by Tom, Tom Skerritt. Skerritt. Yeah. yeah, which is very fun uh, to see him. Um, and that Tom Skerritt is a hunk, huh? Tom Skerritt. Very handsome. Very handsome man. Very handsome Tom Skerritt. Um, Mustache. Did you guys ever see that movie uh, Contact with Jodie Foster and... Yeah. Whatever. Yes. Yeah. He was great in that. Like the movie itself. Like I don't know, but but his, his I thought he was really good at being just this this horrible dickhead in that movie. Yeah. Really, really good performance. Anyway. He he looks so much like that that in this movie him playing it straight is like off putting to me a little bit. Um, sure. He he looks like he's going to be a smarmy piece of shit. Um, right. And he's actually like the most polite guy in the world. He's just a nice guy. <laughs> he's so fucking nice. nice. Yeah. He's he he even has an opportunity to like to shit on um, Johnny's life and his family and his recent tragedies and all this other stuff. And he doesn't. He's like, you know, I'm not much of a religious man myself, but, you know, I sure hope God, you know, soft something in you to give you this power or whatever. And, of course, that sets Johnny off. But that wasn't even the intention, I don't think, um, unless he was playing him. Um, no, I don't think so. I think the, the sheriff is portrayed as sort of a an idealized, uh, you know, officer of of justice you know the kind of same thing that we talked about when we talked about twin peaks the thing with like dale cooper yeah uh, the, this ideal police officer which you know does not exist in reality but is used as a lever in uh you know entertainment to move the story along more or less. yeah which it's funny that that's what tom scarrett was doing and it could have been anybody <laughs> um yeah. uh but he so he needs help tracking down a serial killer um and and johnny says no because he's got he's pissed off about his circumstances 
Um, and then Sarah actually walks back into the picture. Uh, she visits with her infant son, uh, puts him down in a bed somewhere, and then fucks Johnny, um, and then leaves uh, and says, uh, he says, you know, am I going to see you again? She says, no, not like this. Um, sort of, I guess, in her mind, this being the end of their relationship officially, um, and his mind being like, well, this fucking sucks. Um, and then she but, also sticks her kid in the front seat uh, and drives <laughs> off. It's kind of a 1983 <laughs> thing there. He's like crawling around in the front seat in his big parka. <laughs> she initially she initially put him in the driver's seat. And then she's, oh, well, wait, that's not, that's and not right. what's really bad is what that that guy driving the milk truck is back out on the road. And, you know, he was not punished. <laughs> Uh, no, but, but, uh, you know, I think that that scene is really interesting because again, when you look at it in the context of what this movie is about, like, it's almost like he gets to have a vision of what his life would have been like if he had not been in that accident. To me, that's what that scene is, is that it's not, you know, he's not having a psychic vision, but he's having a sort of vicarious experience of what it would have been like if he had had his normal life as he had expected to live it. And to ha- both have that and then to have it taken away, uh, you know, I mean, what it does is it changes his mind about helping uh, with a serial killer because he feels like he needs to have purpose, uh, you know, with his life. But they also do lay it on pretty thick because I think after that he sees something on the news about another, like, yeah. another incident, another very gruesome, and they really lay it on, like, she's 15 years old and all this stuff, and he's really moved at that point um, to uh, get off his ass and, and go help. Uh, so he does. He goes and helps. Uh, there's a really cool scene in the, uh, like, under the bridge area there. Um, Anthony Kiedis is somewhere in the background. I think you can spot him if you look really close. Um, and he picks up, like, a like an empty pack of cigarettes and tries to get a reading off of it. Um, he can't do any. You think it's going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. And, and, and this would be a great, I mean, in any other movie, this would be a great time for the sheriff to be like, see, I fucking knew it. You're just some piece of trash, you know? And he's like, oh, that's okay. No problem. Thanks for trying. <laughs> like, very, like, very understanding. Yeah, world's, world's nicest cop. Yeah, really. It really is. Um, You're not going to bust my head off for making, making you come down here? Uh, kind of a nice treat if you ever watch the movie again is if you watch the performance of the deputy in that scene and in the scene where they first go to Johnny's house, he's really, really good. Like, yeah. Um, he doesn't give anything away, you know, like the first time you watch it through, it's completely, you know, doesn't register at all. But when you watch it again, like you can tell that this guy is a total psycho. Like he has some really good performances for barely having any lines at all. Right. Right. Um, and right there, uh, another body is discovered right while they're just hanging out. Um, and they go to the scene. It's in this gazebo and this girl is face down in the snow there. Um, and Johnny, uh, is able to, to touch her body and have a vision of what happened um, and they really, uh, they really play it out. Um, you don't see the killer's face at first, um, but she seems to know him. And that's what he keeps repeating. She knows him. She knows him. She knows him. And of course, by this point, the deputy uh, has like <laughs> taken the car and absconded from the scene. Um, and then he finally reveals that that's who it was. Uh, so they track him down uh, to his house. Um, and his mom answers the door there and she is like wildly protective of him, uh, in sort of a you know, very strange way, I guess it's fair to say, um, they go upstairs, um, and to confront him and he, this is, this is basically the only, I mean, gore maybe even oversells it, but this is, this is basically the really violent part, uh, of the movie, uh, because the setup here, and even though they don't end up showing much, the actual setup of the way that Dodd kills himself so that he won't be arrested and, and tried for his crimes or discovered or anything like that is like fucking psychotic. The way that they came up with this is absolutely disgusting. I It made me go Meh, when I was watching it, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, and and 
Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to describe how how he Please uh, do. committed suicide. He he got he got in the he put on like a long like a rain slicker, and he got in the bathtub oh. and he set some. Uh, yeah, he mounted some scissors on the edge of the bathtub and then stabbed himself in the mouth. He like and that's how he the, killed himself. The, the fucking film. subtleties of this scene are so nasty because it it's not just scissors, right? It's like <laughs> barber scissors that have the the thumb yeah. hook on there, so it catches on whatever he's rested in between like books or something like that, right? Right. And it's not just that he stabs himself; it's that he puts his hands behind his head like he's doing sit ups and forces. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's fucking awful. You don't see it happen. You don't even hear it happen. Like it would it would be so easy to the hear quick, it happen. The quick shot of it is like is brutal. Ugh. Just a quick shot that you get. It's like fucking of him in the bathtub just. Bud Dwyer out is laying there. Yeah, and he's like twitching, you know. And it's and it's true. Yeah. Like honestly, it's it's horrible, but it's not even clear how that would kill him. Honestly, to me, it just seems right. like a really painful thing to do to yourself. It seems like he would live through it, you know. Um, it, it's very Cronenberg, though. I mean, the, like you said, the scissors and all that. Like I don't know if you've seen Dead Ringers. Um, probably. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dead Ringers. So I mean, Dead. One of the things in Dead Ringers is that they have these like alien tools that they use to perform yeah. this like new gynecology that they've invented. Um, Good movie, you should check it out. Uh, <laughs> Might pass on it just based on the description. <laughs> it's really, really good. A new good. type of gynecology. <laughs> What's wrong with the old one, honestly? <laughs> but the 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 psych the you know how psycho his suicide is, I think, is in you know it speaks to the fact that like this is not a cop who is corrupt. This is not a cop who is uh, killing a guy out of revenge or for money or anything like that. Like he is a a pathological serial killer. He is. Yeah a ritualistic killer. He has, uh, you know, you can tell by the way that he kills himself, how ritual what he's doing is and, and the way yeah. that he killed these girls and all of this stuff. And I think that this tie between a violent pathology and a position of power, such as a sheriff's deputy, uh, t- come together and are then amplified again in the third act when you come to really know Stilson. Yeah, because I think another part of it might be that they want... You know, when they put this together, they want the questions that you're asking to be about certain things and not about other things. Right. Like they want you to be asking maybe primarily is what he is, is what he's seeing real? Can we trust that that's real? Um, And then also is his act uh, good or bad? Right. Is his act good or evil Um, rather than have the 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 clarity of the situation be like, well, are the people themselves that he's being pulled to act on bad or not right like we there's no gray area as to whether the serial killer it's not like i mean to take a fucking example it's not like the guy was killing in self-defense and he has to like prevent that or discover that or whatever right like there's no gray area there for him and later on in the third act when it's when we're talking about stilson i mean they they use the most overt possible example to show why he should even be considering these things rather than it being something I mean, honestly, in in today's age, the, the what if the question were he's not doing enough to make sure that people get health care, for instance, right? A very right. real problem that right. does have some very evil re, uh, uh, results and some very evil motivations as well. But like on paper, it could not be any more black and white what he's like acting on in this movie. So you think about the other questions instead. You think about the the the, the more epistemological things as opposed to the, the the metaphysics of the whole thing you know what right. i mean and and to me that's exactly it. it the tagline for this movie uh let me pull the poster up here is, is uh in his mind he has the power to see the future in his hands he has the power to change it so it, it's this 
sort of duality between having the knowledge of what's going to happen. And this is certain knowledge, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, supernatural knowledge that we can be 100% sure of, mm. which doesn't exist in reality, of course. So, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the thought experiment of this movie is that what if you did know for sure, right? And in his hands, he has the power to change it. But here's the thing. Knowing for sure is not the problem. Knowledge is not the problem. Everybody knows more or less what's up. Like, I mean, there are some naive people, but for the most part, people know what's going on in the world. That doesn't mean that people are going out and, and taking action on it. Like to me, this is, that's what this movie is about in essence is in the third act, his decision to make this sort of, uh, ethical stand that, that he knows is going to cost him his own life to, you know, counter this evil, uh, that happens. And so, you know, to me that that's, that's one of the main, uh, ideas of this movie is not that is that psychic powers are less, um, interesting and less important than what you do with the knowledge that you get. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a device to make more clear the choices that, people should or shouldn't be making. Um, um, yeah. And of course the reality is, is that even though things, certain things are very clear to a lot of people, um, most things are not as clear as they seem to be to him. Even once he buys in, even once the rest of the world buys in that what he's seeing is legitimate. I mean, there is still sort of the question in the background, um, of like, how do, how do I get people to believe me when the, when they follow my advice or when I intervene in such a way that my vision doesn't ultimately come true. Um, and I think they play with that a little bit, especially in the the third part here. So let's finish up the second part. Yep. Uh, the His mom, uh, uh, Sheriff Dodds or Deputy Dodds mom comes out, uh, knew about the crimes the whole time, which Johnny confirms with a vision. Um, she then shoots Johnny and is killed herself by uh, Sheriff Bannerman. Um, and that sort of brings that part to a close. Uh, Johnny then is asked to come back to the clinic by uh, Dr. Wyzak, and that's where we find out that his health is failing. Um, so from there, he moves away and isolates himself from basically everyone, including his father, who is then sending him letters and packages from people um, asking for help with, I think, as he says in the movie, their pets, their loved ones. Um, advice in their life and that kind of stuff. And, and he says that, you know, they want things that I can't give them. Um, and so he sort of sticks to himself and takes on children to tutor and that's sort of his job uh, for a while. And then a, a really wealthy guy named Roger Stewart played by Anthony Zerba. I don't know. I'm not familiar with him. I, just, I don't know. I've seen him before, but I don't know what in, um, I guess I could have looked that up beforehand. Um, he comes in and asks Johnny to tutor his son, who is sort of like a quiet, uh, kid with the. With the deepest <laughs> voice you've ever heard in your entire life, this kid. Yes. Oh man, <laughs> let me see if I can at least get that part up because uh, what is what is the kid's? Name? I should I should have clipped that part too and had it because the kid is like the ADR on this that they did on this kid is just so funny. Well, do you it think is, it's uh, do you think it is post? Because what I noticed when watching this movie, I and, think it and is. I watched it with headphones in, like over a wireless. Can I was watching on my fucking. <laughs> so your your ears were feeling real good with that bass from that. Oh uh, yeah, my hair was standing up on end. No, I but I thought <laughs> I thought the whole movie had this sort of it weird effect in it. Um, and I don't know if it's just because it was the eighties or what, but I, I read, I was looking for stuff about it and I read that somewhere maybe in a commentary on a different movie, Cronenberg says that this was his first movie that he did in stereo. And I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but the whole movie has sort of the surreal quality, uh, with the audio where it's like, 
I wouldn't call it fuzzy, right? But it's just, um, it's not like bombastic at any points, except for when he's having these visions. And that like cuts through and is like the most clear noise you get in the whole thing. Um, and then, yeah, to walk in on this kid and he's like, well, I don't know about that. Whatever the fuck. I don't know what he's. <laughs> I got to fucking find the. I'm going to pull the clip up so we can watch this shit. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I can say one thing real quick, I, I love that the mother says to him, this is going back to the second part. Before uh, she gets killed, she says, you know, you're a you're a devil sent from hell. This yeah. is the mother of the serial killer cop who's telling him this. Yeah. But and so so yeah. you can kind of laugh it off in the irony of that. But I also think that it does speak to this idea that he is in a way he is interfering with things that were supposed to happen. So the idea of him being a devil or of going against some greater plan is not too far fetched, like because he is trying to change things that are more or less set in stone. Right. Like, I mean, that's sort of the idea. So I think that, the, you, you know, they use her as a way to convey this idea that maybe he is. Uh, you know, doing something to interfere in that. Now it's coming from an obviously unreliable source, so you know you can make with that what you want. But I do think it raises the question. Yeah, you're right. Um, I've almost got it. I'm actually like I'm actually tracking through the movie right now to hear the kid's voice. Um, so here he is. He's being okay. He's walking into the kid. Okay, I'm gonna pull this up right now. Little no neck gremlin. Can you guys? Can, nothing's happening right now, but let me know if you can hear it. Okay, I'm sorry. There's a lot of quiet parts in the movie. Shit, where the hell's the goddamn audio? Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this. Doesn't so it, matter. No, it. Imagine a, imagine a deep voice. It is important. That's what the kid sounded like. Not really important. We match the voice 100. percent Do they not even talk in this scene? I swear to God. There he goes. Mike, today's YKS sponsored by Wipers123.com. Our old friends at Wipers123. Boy, we've been through some stuff, I'll say, with Wipers123. Am I right? Uh, yeah, I guess we've been through some stuff. You make it seem like we got into like an argument with them or something. Or we no, fighting. not at all. I would never. Well, what could I even argue with Wipers123.com about? I can't think of a single thing. Okay, I'm talking oh, about. I could think of a. I could think of something when they said we we will offer your fa- your listeners of your show a discount code, and I said no, that's too much. That's too much. A discount <laughs> code to use. Don't give them that. You yeah. basically give them away for free. And they don't appreciate it either. We said, but they insisted, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you about wipers one two three. Here's the deal: they're focused on one thing and one thing only. That's selling premium wiper blades. And providing premium service. It feels like two things at least, but they combine it into one. The efficiency of wipers one, two, three, heretofore unknown among wiper blade selling companies. No matter what you're driving, wipers one, two, three has a wiper blade that's going to fit your vehicle. Their massive inventory covers 99% of all vehicles on the road right now. And let me tell you what, if you eat 99% of a pie and your wife comes home and says, what happened to all that pie? And you say, well, actually there's 1% left. Don't don't expect that. That ain't going to work. You're in the jam, okay? You understand what I mean? Sounds, it just sounds like you're hungry. I'm just, I'm just saying, if you eat 99% of a pie, it might as well be the whole pie, okay? 
So they pretty much got you covered. Even if you got one of the 1% pies, not really their fault. It's your fault. Get a different car. Wipers123.com is the only place you can purchase the Typhoon Speedset wiper blades. Okay. These are so great. And I'll tell you why. They're American made, all weather, premium beam blades that feature quick click technology. Bean the, blades. You, for you, probably because you're hungry I've, earlier. Okay. I haven't had dinner. And they guarantee that you'll have them installed in less than 30 seconds. And I hope that's as long as it takes to get dinner cooked and in my belly, because that's how hungry I am. Okay. Now, here's the part that they wanted us to tell you about, and we really didn't want to, Mike. <laughs> yeah, you can go to wipers123.com and you can use the promo code your kicks your Kickstarter sucks. That's the name of the show. How did they how did they uh do how did they set that up? We'll never know what technology they used for it uh and you can get ten dollars off your orders of a, a speed set wiper blades and we, we we said no don't but they said we insist so not much we could do about it so yeah that's what it is act now by going to wipers 123.com and using promo code your kickstarter sucks for ten dollars off orders of speed sets before we convince them to take it down like any day now get in there yeah yeah Mike, today's episode of YKS brought to you by HelloFresh. Now, don't you love going out to the mailbox and getting a nice letter? What if that letter was a steak dinner from our friends at HelloFresh? I think that's a pretty good trade-off. What about you, my man? <laughs> no idea what that was. Well, how many goddamn stamps would be on that letter? I mean, <laughs> a steak in a big envelope. You'd have to, that's a three-stamper. That's a three-stamper at least, yeah. That's That actually sounds really stressful, trying to mail a steak. That's why you let HelloFresh take care of it, okay? These meals are easy and stress-free. They offer convenient, no-contact delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. I call them fam. The recipes are easy to follow with simple steps and pictures to guide you along the way. I know that's right. Plus, HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. Why? That's about as long as is uh, watching the latest episode of a network sitcom. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, you do the, actually do this though, don't you? You actually use this. I do like service. the I like the HelloFresh service. I like the meals that they have sent over. Um, gotten me out of a jam a few times. Um, I think because, as I've said before, planning your meals can be hard, and. The thing is, we keep having days over and over. Like, every time you wake up, it's a new one. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Frankly, I'm getting quite sick of it. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's a little bit tiring every day you have to wake up. And then part of waking up is deciding what you're going to eat. And I go right to dinner because breakfast, lunch, you know, I could take or leave. Dinner time is the star of the show. Okay. And HelloFresh has really helped me a few times put some real... I mean, we're talking stars. We're talking John Travolta. We're talking. Uh, That's the first star you. I can't think of another Travolta. star right now. HelloFresh is the John Travolta of uh, f- food delivery service. He's been in some amazing things, Michael. And why not? He's been in some great stuff. He was in Michael. <laughs> Your biopic. Um, here's the deal about HelloFresh. Okay, you can go to HelloFresh.com/slash Your Kickstarter Sucks eighty and use code Your Kickstarter Sucks eighty. To get $80 off, including free shipping. When you do this, think about me at home 
easily cooking the meals in about 30 minutes, which is approximately the length of time that you spend watching your average network sitcom, okay? Mm-hmm. Think about me doing that, plating this bad boy, munching it down and saying, yum, 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 I want some more. And then putting my dish in the sink or the dishwasher, depending on if it's clean or dirty. Imagine that. And then see your hands taking you to HelloFresh.com slash your Kickstarter sucks 80 and using code your Kickstarter sucks 80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. Mmm, mmm. I want some more, and John Travolta's here too. You don't have to do anything. It's my dad that right, Well, that's not that deep, okay? So now you're setting a bad example. You didn't you didn't cue up the right. That's a, that's the first part where he talks. Like fools. Yeah. He has a strange voice for a child. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> he sounds like a middle-aged woman. Everybody at home is like, that sounds like a normal child. Okay. What the hell is going on? Well, that's fine. Don't send me the letters about your kids' voices. Um, so <laughs> my, my kid's voice is much deeper <laughs> attached fucking wave of this guy. <laughs> Hello, Jesse and Mike. <laughs> So we're gonna get him. That's where we first see Greg Stilson, uh, played by Martin Sheen. Uh, kind of cool to see like a, a huge character like this and a huge actor introduced so late in the movie. Um, kind of interesting. Um, and he's this. Well, I, I, if I can say, I mean, he he is introduced like in advertisement first. So he comes right. first as like a political like um, you know parcel. He's he's an he's an item of political thought first in the movie before he appears in person. That's true. That's true. Um, so he's he's hanging out in the guy's house because he's a rich guy. And it's weird. Politicians and rich guys hanging out. I guess that's just part of this fictional world we're led to believe exists. <laughs> and um, he he's walking out like a big swinging dick. And then we find out that Stuart actually doesn't like him. And Stuart kind of goes in on Stilson by explaining, I think, in very plain language why it is or how it is that a lot of people operate. And I guess this is maybe the point. There's a lot of stuff in this movie, obviously, that is still very applicable today. And I don't know if that's part of why you chose it or not, Brendel, because it I mean, I think if I picked up on it, it's obvious to everyone. Um, So obviously, Stilson is, you know, a very Trump like figure and all that stuff. But the thing that I thought was interesting is that Stewart actually is sort of a Bloomberg like figure is what I saw uh, in this scene where he's talking about. And I don't know if I'm going to phrase it exactly right, but he says something to the effect of, well, I don't like this guy. He's dangerous. Um, he's fooling all these people with his ideas, and he doesn't really mean them. Uh, but the reason that I acted buddy-buddy with him right now is that if he comes into power, obviously I'll have to be considered a friend, but I can't get too close or he'll drag me down with him. And I was like, yeah. that's, that's like a million people a day gnashing their teeth about Bloomberg, like spending money in whatever way he sees fit and how it seems irrational or whatever, and they're just not getting that his goals are different from everyone else's goals. And right. and that's yeah. essentially in plain language what his what his goals are, you know? Yeah, and I think that Stewart can represent that class of people in this movie. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, it's you know well known now, and I was well known then and has been this way probably forever, is that, you know, these people who care about money first will do what they can to live in a, in a way that allows them to do that. So they will uh, cooperate with fascists. They will cooperate with centrists. They will not cooperate with the left because the left, the whole purpose of the left is to remove that wealth. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? But, but the, but the, but the real interesting thing to me, and I don't know if you guys did this a while back, a few of us read the, uh, the rise and fall of the third Reich by a guy named William Schreier. It's this really giant book about, yeah. Yeah. 
he he yeah, writes with this really like acerbic, you know, uh, you know, hates Nazis, hates all these guys, and just writes with them with this just silver tongue the whole time. And he describes these uh, German, uh, you know, businessmen, these moguls who ran the giant industries over there, some of whose companies are still around, by the way. And uh, they, um, you know, did the same exact thing where they were like, look, Hitler is stupid. He's dangerous. Um, right. But if we play him right, we can make X amount more money or, you know, safeguard this kind of thing from regulation or do whatever it is that these business guys care about. And the whole idea is that they think that they can keep this guy under their control. But what inevitably happens in that book and in reality, whenever this happens, is that the fascist guys turn on them and take their wealth and probably murder them. Uh, they can never win, you know, as as joining up with this. But they do it anyway because of, you know, the kind of opportunist blood in their systems. But um, I, I think that this is a really good example of that, of exactly what you're saying. The kind of guy who would support Trump, who thinks Trump is an idiot, uh, but will support him for personal advantage and and does not care about the cost to other people. So it's fine for Stewart to say, I need to do this for this reason for myself. But what he's not talking about is that like the lies that Stilson is telling are lies of populism. You know, Stilson very much like Trump is arguing from a right wing populist standpoint where he says, you know, uh, I, I forget the quotes, but he's, you know, what's what the hell is wrong with America today? Uh, yes. You know, he wears the hard hat, the the, the signal, the, the uh, you yeah. know, signature hat, the fake, which fake tough guy b- bullshit yeah. that he was doing. Yeah. And and I mean, it's yeah. really I think it does um, compare to Trump fairly well, but and, and not just Trump, but I mean, lots of different politicians who are uh, ruthless psychos who do not believe in anything that they say and will say anything and are very convincing liars. Um, because they are pure sociopath. They do not feel, they don't have consciences. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a, it's a very, um, very good picture of that. And Stuart, you know, so here's the thing with Stuart is that he, he comes into the movie and he says, uh, Oh, uh, my son needs help. I care about my son so much. He has all these problems, but when you actually meet the son and when, when Johnny gets to meet the son, you find out that the, really the only problem that the kid has is his dad. That's yeah. the only problem that kid has. Yeah, his and his weird voice as well as the other. Well, problem. his voice, yeah, his strange, which he got from his, his dad, super strange so. voice. <laughs> In a way, yeah. So uh, we see Stilson uh, leave the house, and yeah, uh, uh, Chris Stewart is the name of the boy, I think, and and, and Johnny hit it off um, very well. Um, and uh, actually, the next the next scene I think uh, is that we see. Um, uh, Stilson sh- shaking down uh, a local reporter. Um, in his office, or the editor in chief, I guess, of the paper, who has printed um, a uh, an op ed about Stilson as a candidate that he doesn't actually that's not very favorable. Um, he's a third party candidate, so maybe also feels more vulnerable than normal. Um, and I don't know if that's meant to explain the overt uh, shakedown in the office. Um, but of course, he's got compromising photos of the editor in chief uh, cheating on his wife, and says he'll publish them or, or, or whatever and destroy his life if he goes through uh, with the article or just straight up kill him because he's got his hired goon there as well, armed and, and ready to blow somebody away. Um, and I think this this goes back to what I was saying earlier about this movie presenting, and I don't think in a bad way either, but presenting very uh, real situations, very, uh, very legitimate um, and observable forces in our world and and just distilling them in a way that makes sense um, in a movie, uh, both to get the point across faster um, and to elicit like a more obvious reaction um, from the viewer. So like 
in real life, of course, what happens is a uh, the rich guy takes over the company and bleeds it of its assets or insists on directives that make it no longer profitable and destroys it, uh, breaks it down and destroys the employee's morale and all this other stuff and then takes a long period of time, right? Like, of course, in media, it happens all the time and is happening continuously, but... I mean, not that uh, Eddie, whatever his face is, has a problem with Sears because they printed an article about him they didn't like. But the point is, is that the the vampire capitalism exists already, and that's how it would work in real life. But, of course, in this case, we see him bringing a gun to the office and saying, I'm going to fucking kill you if you do this, mm-hmm. which is a little on the nose, but it gets, it gets the point across, at least. It, it is. I, I mean, I feel like for a lot of things in this movie, like uh, groups of people or like forces, like you say, are consolidated into single characters, you know? Right. I, I think that his his heavy, the uh, the bodyguard guy, you know, is uh, really good at, at being that sort of... Because, you know, one of the things about people like this or like Trump and like anybody else is that they have to have these guys who will be their muscle because they're not going to do anything. You know what I mean? They're cowards and they're weak, but there are so many people in the world who are these sort of sadist, uh, you know, followers or like, like people who, what they care about is being in a position to do the violence firsthand. So they're almost like the inverse of the other person that they have no goals. They have no ambition. They have no directive. They just want to be the person inflicting the pain. Yeah, they want to exercise the power. They just don't want the scrutiny of being in charge. Right. Or, or, like even, any, even, or even some of the benefits. Like many, I mean, yeah. none of the people who do the, the violence are rich. None of the people who do the violence are, are getting right. the benefits of, of the elite, right? But they do it anyway because their pathology, if you will, directs them towards this uh, mode of extracting uh, pleasure. And I think that, you know, when it comes to like a police officer like Dodd or when it comes to a guy who's going to be a muscle for a politician – um, these are people who are willing to put a, a, any kind of ethical question aside in order to be in a position to get what they want, which, right. which, are, which is a very small, uh, you know, goal that they have for themselves. And I think that the scene, the scene that I thought was really interesting is when he has his vision of Stilson, the bodyguard is there, he's in the scene and he's sort of just like standing there with his arms crossed, like, yeah, this is good. Right. And, and, and I, to me, like that sort of passivity of, of sort of almost, uh, you know, enjoying the psycho murder of hundreds of thousands of people or whatever, like, uh, you know, it really conveys sort of what his day-to-day psyche is like as well. Yeah. Well, let's get to that part. But for, uh, first, I want to go back and note, if you're watching this movie uh, and you're listening to this before you've watched the movie, pay special attention to the scene where they're watching Stilson on TV in Stewart's living room uh, because he insists on Johnny getting a beer and what the... Uh, uh, the butler brings is the most hilarious beer pour I think I've ever seen in a movie. Mike, I don't know. Did you see? Did you see that Chili's ass beer? I, I didn't see the pour. Was it a bad pour? Oh my god, the fucking beer pour! And it's like it's not even in frame, <laughs> so you don't even. I'm gonna mute this fucking movie over here, and I'm gonna pull up the fucking thing and screenshot it and send it to you. The beer that they serve this guy is so funny. They're just sitting on the table. Oh, here it goes right here. Oh fuck, <laughs> you're gonna love this shit. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a tall, it's like a highball glass. And it's about 40% the way full of just a piss yellow 
super heady beer. And that's like how the rich, it's like, <laughs> ah, that's how the other half lives. That's so refreshing. Thank you for my one sip of beer, sir. I really must be going. It's yeah. fun. It's been fun watching the seven inch TV with you. He's <laughs> <laughs> got one of those setups. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, when Christopher Walken saw him pouring that beer, it made the dead zone sound, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck um so yes after this uh after the shakedown um where do we go from there um well we get pretty close to seeing the the vision at this point um he, he but first he has the vision while tutoring uh the son uh chris right um he has a vision of a hockey uh practice gone wrong um he sees uh stewart um and two other boys uh, falling through the ice because they're playing ice hockey on a pond or whatever. I guess the rich guy couldn't run out a fucking rink uh, for an hour or whatever. So the rich guy is also like taking a huge interest in this because he's the coach, which didn't really hold together for me as sort of like the narcissistic uh, wealthy guy trope. But at any rate, he um, <laughs> he insists on the boys going, and there this is when they have the big fight and Johnny's fired. But he seems to relent and believe him uh, when in reality he doesn't, um, and he wants to go through with the practice anyway. But the kid stays home and. The dad chalks it up to him just being a weird introvert. Uh, when in reality, he bo- the dad's like, the dad's like, "Come on, come on, let's go." The kid's voice drops like six octaves, <laughs> and he says, "No," he says, "No,", no. and all the windows broke. <laughs> the dad scuttled out of the house to the rink. Yeah, that's what cracked uh, the ice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, self fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so he, uh, so he does go ahead with the practice. He goes to the practice without his own kid. And the two boys do end up dying. Um, and you see him realize that he he's the one who caused it the whole time um, and actually does seem to have, like, some pathos um, in the situation. Not that it goes anywhere. Um, uh, but after that, uh, at a Stilson rally, so uh, we at, at this point we already do know that Johnny's ex-girlfriend Sarah and her new husband work for the Stilson campaign. They knock right. on his door or whatever. So we've already had that uh, laid for us. Um, so at the rally... Um, he, he's walking down and shaking hands. Also noted at this point that there's a lot of like, uh, mouth to mouth kissing with the women, which is, I don't know if that was something that was done in the eighties, the politician, like just full on kissing a lady on the mouth in the audience. Um, oh yeah, dude, just kissing everybody on the mouth. And I was like, come on, man. (laughs) I know kissing babies on the forehead is something that (laughs) they would, that's like a trope or whatever, but like actually just like grabbing a woman and going like, (laughs) I don't really know what you get out of, uh, that. Um, but this is where Johnny has his vision of Stilson as president. Um, and I think what was interesting about this is I was waiting for this to pay off because Stilson, um, earlier in the scene where he's in the newspaper office actually says, I've had a vision of myself as president. And I kind of thought they were setting them up to be like dueling psychics or whatever. Um, and I don't, they just kind of leave it. So I guess you're sort of guessing whether that's real or not, but Johnny has the vision and confirms that it, it goes pretty horribly. Right. Well, I mean, you know, that's the thing, right, is that when somebody has a vision of the future, I mean, that's psychotic. Like, you you, you know, the only people who do that are crazy people, especially like like Stilson, you know, people who believe that their own ambition is a is a premonition of the future or something like that. Those are very dangerous people. Um, most of the time, people who believe in those sorts of things do not have any ethics beyond achieving this goal that they've set themselves up for. And I think that Stilson is the perfect embodiment of that, you know. Um, in that he, he's, his goal, you know, he says his, he sees himself as president, but being president isn't his goal. His goal is power, like unlimited power. 
Like that's what his goal is, as it is for many of the people who, you know, what it reminded me of is you remember, uh, I think it was uh, Buttigieg, right? He was like, oh, I knew I was going to be president when I was six years old or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, that's Greg yeah. Stilson shit. That's man. You're psychotic. A psycho. That's a yeah guy. without the populist appeal and charisma <laughs> but yeah yeah so you know i i think that like i said it is trump more than anybody else but it's also lots of other different politicians who do the exact same things because politics is not you know as much as we like to make it about the individuals who are participating in it it's really more about the system uh which we can get into more after the end of the movie but because i think it's really uh, important to this but I also just want to say that, like, you know, the thing with him, with his wife and her husband being these canvassers for Stilson is very funny. Like, if you put that in the context of, like, you you go into a coma and you wake up and your girlfriend has left you and has married a MAGA guy and she's also MAGA now. And they both come to your door with their MAGA hats and they're like, do you know what President Trump has been doing for America? Right. You know, and you're and you are a a sane person and you you have to. try to interface with that in a way that because you know you still have you still care about this woman or whatever even though the guy she's with is a total fucking psycho like you know i I think that you know it would be it would have been too convoluted for her to hook up with stilson directly right so i think that there's a a sort of proxy there with this guy who is a stilsonite you know because the sort of grand drama of the whole thing was that he lost his, his the woman that he loved and then he has to kill the guy who uh you know is very hamlet esque in that way um, also a political assassination, uh, done by, you know, knowledge that's gained from the supernatural. So, yeah, um, he does. So the vision that he has specifically, um, is, is, I mean, very wrought. I mean, he, so he sees Stilson in like a manic state, basically in the middle of the night, um, saying he is, it's his destiny. Um, he's manifesting it now by, launching this nuclear strike. I guess we presume that in the context of the, uh, the, the film, it's the USSR. I don't, I mean, I guess I don't know that they say that, um, but it's, it's a preemptive nuclear strike somewhere at some point, And it's loosing all of our nuclear arsenal basically uh, on the rest of the world. And yeah, the bodyguard in the background standing there um, just like passively watching, I think is interesting, but I think what's more interesting about it is that he actually ha- also seems to have assumed a role in the administration in that he knows like the order that you're supposed to go through the steps to like unlock the nuclear launch or whatever. He's very very Stephen Miller type uh, in appearance and also well he is yeah how you yeah, would think it would play out that's true mm-hmm. and there the, are there's a million of these worm tongue guys that, that yeah. do that yeah yeah the, the and the fact to me that he is like an unqualified not that him being qualified would make the actions any better of course. But the fact that he's just some dumb mook, like, you know, being like risen to the the uppermost echelon right there with the five star general who is also like, I really don't want to do this. But then, of course, falls like a house of cards, which is what's what they do in the face of political pressure. Right. But the fact that he's there is so funny. That's a problem. That's a problem with a lot of this. There's a lot of these wormy uh, guys in this. That's what's called the swamp. And that's why (laughs) Mr. Mr. T, we need to vote Mr. T and back into office. (laughs) For another four years to keep draining the swamp, drain these little uh, lizards. Some out of, of it here. got drained. Get it's like it's like one inch. Like when you're just starting the pool for the year, <laughs> he it's just like... started to drain it. He needs another four years to keep 
It's a big, it's a big swamp. It's, it's really big. And that's part of, yeah, that's part of the problem. Um, <laughs> but, but isn't that a very Trump thing to do would be to have people around you who are incompetent, but exactly willing to do what yeah. you say. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that is yeah. how most of these people are. And that's why they are so foolish is that they are surrounded by yes men who will not tell them no and will not tell them no, actually that's stupid or no, that you sound like an idiot when you say that, like they're surrounded by people who just uh, praise them all the time. And they get so out of touch with reality that they, you know, go on TV and say things that are just absolutely, I mean, inconceivable to a person who has lived in the world. Like, yeah. And this, and this is true of so many politicians, <laughs> like, you know, so, so to me, that's very believable that you would have a guy who has no expertise, who has no qualifications beyond being a guy who's a buddy with the guy who has power. just loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, I mean, in a way it's not even loyalty because, uh, the guy is driven more by his desire to be in a position to commit violence or whatever it is that he gets off on than he is to be loyal to uh, Stilson, you know? So at the end of the movie, uh, you know, again, hopefully you watched it. Like at the end of the movie, he, he basically leaves Stilson. He's, he like shakes his hat at him because, right. And, and walks away. Yeah. But it's not, I mean, at least in my reading of it, it's not because he's like disappointed that he, you know, did what he did at the end of the movie. It's that he's, he's no longer a vehicle for him to get what he wants. Exactly. And he sees he sees the writing on the wall well before everyone else does, because yes. he's the most cynical about the whole thing. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So he uh, so before this, he does visit with Wyzak again to ask him the would you kill? He says, would you kill Hitler? But if, and like, I guess the modern retelling, it would be baby Hitler because um, it's harder to kill normal Hitler, I think, probably. Um, and that's where we learn about Dead Zones, the title of the film, which are blind spots in the visions that indicate that the future can be altered. Um I got to say this part, I didn't really completely, I I just haven't really comprehended this part just yet because there are gaps in the visions, but they don't seem to be like removed in any chronological way from what he's witnessing. Right. You know, like, Hey, 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 hold on. You said there's gaps in the, in the dead zone. Did you see in the title of the film when there were gaps in the title? I was super high when I watched it. (laughs) Did you see in the title I, when there's I, yes, dead spots Yeah, I saw that you had written that down. Like when the credits are playing, there's like the negative space in between the <laughs> yeah, lettering. Yeah. I, maybe that is something. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, that, yeah. I also wrote down HDNet watermark, which is, I guess, uh, there's a boot. I got the bootleg version of it on my server. I don't know if you picked that up, but. Was, I think that was just part of the movie because that was on my copy, too. And I'm, I mean, how could we have watched the same copy? <laughs> <laughs> that is strange. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The, the dead zone thing didn't really come together for me, but that's 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 so, on me. So here's the thing. In, in the book, the dead zone meant something else. In the book, the dead zone referred to uh, like the part of the brain where, you know, you know, there used to be that thing where people would say you only use 10 percent of your brain and the other right. 10 percent is dormant or whatever. I think that that's what the dead zone was supposed to be in the book. And in the in the movie, they changed that to fit in more with the the sort of theme that I was talking about of the difference between what you know and what you do about it. So to me, the dead zone, it doesn't relate as much to like psychic visions as it does to you. You have the amount of knowledge that you have and you have the set of actions that you can perform. And the, uh, you know, before you make a choice, that space between it is the dead zone. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. The dead zone is the part that we don't see in the sense of it's not what he's lacking in his vision. It's just the part that we don't watch play out. Right. And I, I I don't, I, I just don't, because to me, like in the in the in the modern like pop psychology version of of of, of time travel ex- thought experiments, it's presumed that you can change the future essentially across the board, right? And so the fact that he's having the vision seems to me to indicate. 
he's a part of this somehow. It's not like he's 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 not grasping a vision of the future like in some distant place that he can't possibly be a part of. Anytime he views the past, it is. But when he views the future, it's like it's um it's proximate to him in some way. So for me, the distinction between stuff he can alter and stuff he can't alter didn't really make a lot of sense because we don't really see any vision of the future that he can't alter. We don't see an example of that, right? Like all of it is something he can act on. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that the visions are actually more ambiguous than what they're made out to be. Like, again, this is why I was saying at the top that you can watch this movie real easily and just watch it through and be done with it. But if you look at it a little deeper, like, I think that the visions are somewhat ambiguous. Um, he, he, you know, for instance, uh, when he sees the, the accident in the ice, he sees some kids falling. Does he mm-hmm. see the kid? I don't know. So does he actually see the kid who stayed home falling through the ice or does he see what happened anyway? And again, with Stilson, he, he sees, so after he, after Stilson, you know, uh, does his thing and, and, uh, it, he sees that he's no longer going to be, uh, doing the Holocaust and he's going to commit suicide. It, it doesn't show that there's not going to be a nuclear Holocaust. It just shows that Stilson is not going to be the guy doing it. Do you know what I mean? So, yes. so, so there's some ambiguity, I think in the visions, even though uh, from a mainstream film level, it is sort of directed in the sense that he did solve this problem. I do think that it, it, it can be read ambiguously as all of his visions being sort of, uh, you know, for instance, he sees the, the girl who's, uh, the nurse, the first vision he has, mm-hmm. he sees a girl, he sees a girl in a burning house. He does not see her die. Do you know what I mean? So, right. so does he change what happens or, or is he just seeing what's happening? Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, the, the, the last thing that he's like, we said, we, we saw, we, we, we talked about his last vision. Um, and from there he resolves to assassinate Stilson based on the conversation he has with Wyzak, where he's, he sort of says, I mean, almost comically that of course he would kill Hitler. He would have to kill Hitler. He'd be forced to kill Hitler. Um, just right, at, well, at the, any well, cost. Yeah, the line is really good because he says, you know, as a, let's see, I have it, uh, I, you know, I'm expected to save lives and ease suffering. I love people. Therefore I would have no choice but to kill the son of a bitch. Yeah. Like, to, to me, that's a very leftist ethic. Yeah. Do you know what I Absolutely. mean? Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so he takes that advice on and, 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 and gets on a bus and gets a rifle and goes and hides out and, um, feels like he's nearly discovered, but he, he's, he seizes his moment and takes a shot and misses, I would say badly, um, but I'm no marksman, (laughs) um, and reflexively Stilson grabs Sarah's baby. Of course, she's on stage for whatever reason. Um, and the baby is there too. He grabs the baby, uses it as a human shield in a very cowardly fashion, um, and then we do see the photographer taking a, a photo of that um, of that happening. Uh, and then Johnny is uh, killed by Stilson's bodyguard, um, falls over the rail in a very funny way. The the uh, the doll that they used for uh, walking is extremely funny in this scene. Um, and he's dying. Uh, he's uh, we do see the bodyguard take off because like they used a they used a stunt dog for that shot. <laughs> and you can see the tail. They just put clothes on it. He does, and they shoved it off the band. He does bark, but it feels like the bark was ADR too. So they like came back in later. (laughs) (laughs) Bark. This is really loud. Um, So Johnny is sort of uh, accosted there by Stilson, like, "Who sent you? Why'd you do this?" or whatever. And then he sees the vision that we talked about a second ago of Stilson um, in a very, I mean, almost ham-fisted but very funny way of the Time Magazine cover, Stilson's failure or whatever, and um, he's reading that and then picking up the gun and blowing his brains out in this, this black room. Um, and then he feels like, okay, I've averted the crisis. Um, and, uh, Sarah comes and comforts him as well and says that she loves him. And then he 
he dies, you know, I guess satisfied that, that he made the right choice. And I guess as Brendel says, we don't know what ultimately he prevented, but he seems to believe at least that he did right. prevent the the vision he saw. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's, I mean, there are a lot of things going on at the end of the movie. Um, so first of all, I think that, you know, you can get into the idea of how absurd it is. And one of the reasons why it's so funny the way that it ends is that in our, in 2020 to think that a uh, politician could be shamed out of power is absurd, right? I mean, we know firsthand yeah. that that is not yeah. going to happen. I believe firmly and truly, this is not a joke, that Donald Trump could use a baby as a human shield and it would not affect anything. Like the well, people who hate him would still hate him. Baby, baby shouldn't have been there. Baby shouldn't have been there. Where was the, what was the baby doing? Any, well, the anything. baby was wearing a MAGA. Baby loved Trump. Doesn't matter what, what he says about <laughs> it. He would, because the people who support him are going to support him anyway, because it's not about him it's about supporting these the sort of ideology that they want so i think there's truth in that but i think like well it's also not about it's not about him but it's also not about what he does anymore it's about like who he is it's like uh, it's the effect that he has on the other people right if it pisses somebody off that's what that's part of what makes it so good and and i i believe that too i agree with you i don't disagree with you at all and i and i'm not going to put all my eggs in this basket by any means but i do think it's probably there probably is enough evidence to show that Trump's weakness in contracting COVID and his his weirdness about blaming people who do that do not survive in the way that he did had an impact on his popularity. And I know that's like a, a micro dose of like, well, it's certain people in certain areas at certain times. And who knows if that really reflects the vote or whatever. But I think there are some people who are are are. There are, of course, the diehard supporters for whom nothing will ever change. But I think there are also enough people who are so goddamn stupid that something like that, where he appears like a little bit weirder and a little bit weaker than he normally does to us, he's the ultimate like weak pussy and annoying weirdo. But to like a 75 year old guy who lives in the villages, like maybe Trump looking really sick and being like, Ugh, I'll get over it. And then if you don't, you're you suck or whatever. Like maybe that that type of superficial conflict is enough for some people to say, oh, you know what? Maybe this guy's not as like he's not cool to me anymore or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, we'll see. Right. We'll see in the election how that pans out. But I think that what I what you'll find being is the, uh, sorry, being the optimist in Brendel's face is like the the, the worst possible draw I can have. <laughs> I'm looking at my fucking cards. I've got like a two and a three. I've been completely fucked having to do that bit. well i I mean you know all i'm saying is that if you look at republican voter turnout in the in presidential elections is what i'm talking about if you look at the republican voter turnout it's it's pretty much the same across the board and i think that you know there are people who vote republican because they have money and they want to keep that money and, and get more of it and there are people who vote republican because of other sort of issues that they that they you know purport to touch on um whatever neither of those things is really affected that much by the personality or person of the candidate that they're supporting people will vote down a line of a party without even reading the names or knowing anything about the people or knowing anything about what they stand for or anything like that but simply voting down the party lines because that's what they've always done yeah um so so i mean i agree that yes would there be some percentage of people who might be moved maybe would it be a significant enough percentage to alter the sort of what would happen anyway i don't know I mean, the, the truth is the uh, the president holding a baby to escape an assassination attempt would be a meme and a joke like within a yeah. week. 
Yeah. Um, and different people would take that as signifiers for different reasons, right? There but, but, would be. And what are you going to do? You're going to make a tweet that says, "Sir, I demand that you step down. This cowardly act has shamed us all." A lot like, of people would, yeah, yeah. yeah I know a they would, but would. to to what effect? Like, I mean, it's absurd <laughs> yeah. to to think that you could do anything about that, you know. So, yeah. so that so that part of the movie is very funny. The other part that's very funny to me is the idea that you can embody social issues like this into one person. Um, this is this goes for the Hitler question too, and this is my answer to the Hitler question: is that it? it I mean, you really have to reframe it. It's it asking, "Would you kill Hitler?" is a very conservative way to look at that problem because it's not like things were perfect before Hitler was born. It's not like there wasn't a whole, you know, globe full of problems that have existed since society started that had led up to that point. You know, the people who are involved when it actually happens need to be held responsible and are responsible for the evil that is done in the world. But you can't say that, okay, by cutting the head off of this thing, it's going to stop because there are a million other guys just like Hitler, just like Trump, just like anybody of these crazy people who are looking to get power and they will, you know, replace them right away. Like you, so you can't solve a systemic problem by killing one guy, you know, not to say that you still shouldn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. Go hog wild. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I think that the idea Have fun of like, with it. so, so for instance, the, the, dead, the dead zone was made in 83, right? So this is sort of in the height of the, uh, Reagan year, cold war, uh, scare of, you know, nuclear annihilation, uh, right. and all, and all of these kind of things. Yeah. You see Reagan in the background of the newspaper office yeah. as well, sort of smiling, looking over this, the, the events as well. Yes. Very good. And, and I've always said, I've always said that Trump is the most like Reagan of any other president. I think there are lots and lots of similarities between Trump and Reagan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's for another time. Um, so, you know, I, I think that when you look at it in the context of that 83 is the year that, that Reagan announced star Wars. Um, you have this very real fear of being killed by nuclear Holocaust. Uh, so, you know, why would Stilson be the one guy who's going to prevent this from happening? Why would killing that one dude who was not even, have power yet in a world that's already dominated by the threat of nuclear holocaust it's not going to change the global parameters do you know what i mean like right so you're still in the same position as you were before you just have a guy with a different name who's who's doing the psycho stuff yeah and the 50 percent or whatever right. people who voted for the complete fraud psycho are still hanging out there like waiting for the next guy to come along you know um in that sense it's like in that sense it's a really liberal question not in the binary of liberal versus conservative, but in our modern understanding of what the liberals in this country are, which is conservative, right. which is to say, um, and it, and it has to like the, 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 the question of voting this year, for instance, is, is exactly the same type of question because the, the leftist answer to that is, well, the problem is systemic participating in the system does not yield a favorable result. I admit that not participating in the system also will most likely not yield a favorable result, but in my view, I'm not complicit in it by participating in it. And the liberal response is, no, participate in the binary. You have a binary choice. It's Biden or Trump. If it's not one, it's the other. If it's this one, it's not that one. And that's the way that they have to view the question. The same thing with killing Hitler or not killing Hitler, which is, to me, I understand what you're asking me to do. I understand you're asking me to make a choice. I could easily do that. I make choices all day long. Wipe my ass, don't wipe my ass. It's simple. I choose wipe my ass every time. Not that anyone asked. I'm not on trial. But... I'm I'm I don't want to participate in it because I understand that there is more to it than this, you know, and me saying that there's more to it than this is not even a it's not even a dismissal of 
the question, like you said, kill Hitler. I don't give a fuck. Do it. Please do. I mean, honestly, somebody should do it. But if you think that doing that solves all of the problems, then you're wrong. You're fucking crazy. And I can tell the reason you're asking me that is because you think you do think that that is solving the problems. Right. You wouldn't ask me. You wouldn't make me vote for Biden. You wouldn't hammer me over the head with vote for Biden if you didn't think that solved the problems. So you clearly do, you know. I don't think I would kill him, you know. <laughs> okay, do you want to expand on that? Just, you know, who? Uh, it's just me, you know, all walking up with like, what, I got a gun or something? I mean, yeah, I you can make the scenario it. whatever you want. You have a... I don't know how to use it. <laughs> you don't know how to use the gun. What do you? Well, fucking okay. As part of the hypothetical, you get the instruction manual for the gun. Do you think you could pull it off then? And I'd be so scared. But dude, it's Hitler. Didn't you think that like it was really satisfying when Christopher Walken was cocking that bolt action rifle right there? You hear the, guy, you hear the politician <laughs> talking. You can just feel that bolt action just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the the minute right before that where he's actually spilling the bullets on the ground, I think is more of the scene Mike mm -hmm. finds himself in. <laughs> oh god damn it. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, Pretty, just falling. A very realistic detail that, you know, didn't need to be in. Yeah. Uh, there's this quote by Cronenberg that I saw on Wikipedia when I was when I was researching this that I thought was really interesting. Um Cronenberg is an atheist, right? And there's mm. there's a lot of like Christian imagery and and stuff going on in this movie. But I but this quote that he said I think really pertains to the dead zone. He says, uh, "I'm I'm interested in saying let us discuss the existential question. We are all going to die. That is the end of con all consciousness. There is no afterlife. There is no God. Now what do we do? That's the point where it gets interesting to me. That's a Cronenberg quote. So yeah. to me, that's what this movie is about. Is that this, the dead zone is this space, this ethical space that opens up in the realm of action when you have the knowledge of what your actions can do for the future. And I think that, you know, the, the ultimate action, which is what is happening in the third act is like, are you, if you really believe, I mean, and you could say this about climate change, you could say this about, like you said, healthcare was the example that you gave. There are so many of these evils in the world. Uh, that are done by, uh, I mean, what is honestly a fairly small group of people relatively to the world. At what it, What is it that prevents us from acting on that knowledge? We have the knowledge. We know yeah. what's going on. But yeah. people don't typically act, at least directly, in the way that Christopher Walken does. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, and, and, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but I mean, to me, it has to do with the fact that the people who want to do the right thing by the world are not the people who are loading up rifles and going out to shoot people. You know yeah. what I mean? So you you rarely encounter a a political violence that's coming from a place of the greater good. Like that almost never happens. Um so I, I think that, you know, this is this is a question that this film really raises. And again, like I said, it's fairly shocking even today to think about the the way that this is portrayed as killing a politician being the the good, you know, as a, as a rogue assassin, like, uh, it's, it's just, you don't see this ever, uh, in, in movies. So to me, it's very interesting. There are a lot of questions that are opened up by the way that the movie is done. Uh, I really like it. And, and, you know, if nothing else, it's an enjoyable watch if you don't care about that other stuff. I think it really is. Um, let's give a, let's give our review, uh, of the film. Uh, let's go around. We kind of, we kind of give it, uh, I'm trying to find the fucking noise. Uh, Mike, do you have the noise queued up of the vision? Of Christopher Walken's of him vision. having yeah. a vision. I have a tiny dick. <laughs> I was gonna say it was out of let's let's give it a score out of ten. 
you know, and then make the noise of, of the Christopher Walken. Was that it? That was an even smaller balls. That wasn't it. Was that no, it? No, are you fucking eating? What the fuck is going on over there? I just had a mint. Okay. Uh, let's. So I'll 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 start out here. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, I think it's a great Saturday afternoon film. But yeah, there there really is more here than uh, meets the eye. Um, I think it's I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. And, m- and most of all, it's mercifully quick. I don't like. I'm I'm becoming an old piece of shit where I don't like this long ass fucking thing. I got to sit down. They are. Uh, I know it's it seemed like it was a collaborative process and maybe a frustrating one for the people involved, but. The end result, I think, is a pretty brisk-paced movie. I think the fact that it is broken up, even though it is like one long narrative, the fact that it does have these three, you know, uh, component parts, I think... Vignettes. Yeah. I would say, huh? Maybe not all the way, but yeah, there is an aspect of it, right? Because we do see him at different points in his life throughout as well, so... Don't don't know what a a vignette is. Heard it somewhere, reused it here, was hoping to slide on by, you called me on it. Well, Mike, it's a small vin. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> so, uh, I think, hang on, I think I got the noise right here. Uh, okay, well, they put a scream in on that one. That's not it. Fucking, it, it cut your trailers the right way where it's just the, we just want what's in the movie. Okay, we don't want all this extra post-production and stuff. Anyways. You need to get your, you need to get your sounds in order before the show. I have a tiny dick. Okay. Like me, like yeah, I Yeah, like you got, you got, got them all shit, figured out. Good. Um, this is uh yeah, it's the second Cronenberg that we've done uh in the month. Um I'm pretty I'm pretty impressed. I'm intrigued. I want to see more. Uh for this for me, I got to give The Dead Zone a very solid 9 out of 10 uh scary's uh, scary little the wow. sounds there. That's I, a great film. Scary really enjoyed myself. 9 out of 10 scary sounds. Yeah, Mike, what do you give this? Wow. I would also give this 9 out of 10 scary sounds. This was a great uh film, an excellent jaunt. Uh, no, the John's a different that. Stephen King thing, Mike. Did you watch the wrong? <laughs> love it, love it, love. That it. is a Brenda, scary what story. What do you think? Of course, uh, let's let's go to the man. Uh, I think that I would have to give it probably nine out of ten. Suicide Cops. Um, <laughs> That's think, good too. I think <laughs> that it's too. really great uh, in a lot of ways. I think that it challenges things in a very subtle way that let it get under the radar of being a mainstream movie. Um, I think it's very Cronenberg, even though it is a mainstream movie, and I, I really like those aspects of it. The weirdness of it is very cool to me. The the mood, like I said, of the snow and the interiors of these houses. Um, yeah, just really great. A great watch. Absolutely. Um, well, that was great. Let's um, let's go to this is a this is a segment we do sometimes, and I'm only doing it for a very specific reason. This is called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We take a trip down to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That is Roger Ebert, of course. And we read what he has to say about the film. This was um, contemporaneous with its release. Uh, Roger Ebert said, The Dead Zone does what only a good supernatural thriller can do. It makes us forget it is supernatural. Like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, it tells its story so strongly through the lives of sympathetic, believable people that we not only forgive the gimmicks, we accept them. There is pathos in what happens to the Christopher Walken character in this movie. And that pathos would never be felt if we didn't buy the movie's premise. I knew the word pathos before I read this review. I didn't say it because he said it. The movie is filled with good performances. They all work together to take a movie that could have just been another scary thriller and turn it into a believable thriller, which, of course, is even scarier. Three and a half stars. And I don't know if he was on the four star system or the five star or even the ten star. Not clear. Wish I could ask him, but unfortunately he's passed away. But that's a pretty good review from old Roger Ebert, huh? Yeah. You get the nail on yeah, the head. That's great. Um, so we go from one review to some others. This is another segment I call King Me. Now, this is cool. This is fun. Okay. 
Uh, this is another review segment. Uh, we're going to stay in the world of reviews here, but this time there's a twist. I've got a Stephen King film adaptation in mind. Your job is to try to guess it based on the snippets of reviews I've gathered from all over the web, or should I say spider web. You'll take turns, and whoever can identify this movie by just listening to the trailer will get to go first. I'll now play the audio of a trailer. It's your job to identify it first. Remember, we're buzzing in with our scary Halloween-themed names, and then that will decide who goes first in the round of King Me. Okay, I'm playing the trailer now. Did you weigh yourself? 297. Billy, you were 297. Oh, uh, Spooky Brendel. Spooky Brendel? Uh, Thinner. (laughs) Thinner is correct, yes. Um, Really, uh, I was going to say that. Really, that's that's an interesting film there. That's, I mean, maybe not as good as The Dead Zone, but it's one I've watched. I remember watching this one very specifically on a Showtime free trial. If you remember them ever doing these, they would give you like a weekend trial of Showtime, and I flipped this on and watched Thinner, and I was like, ugh, I don't think Showtime is for me. (laughs) <laughs> I, I saw uh, it one time a long time ago I, I don't remember much about it i just kind of remember watching it and thinking yeah all right the the i saw in the i saw it in the theater i went to go see did it you the really yeah. was that when you worked at the theater <laughs> so you could just watch whatever you wanted for free or did you pay to see it no i, I paid money cash money for that's it. that's a tough one um the uh i will say in retrospect having watched the trailer to get that audio the fat makeup on the lead <laughs> actor is I, very funny. I mean, very funny. It's yeah, it's sub crumpian. It's not <laughs> a clumpian. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So here's the first one. This goes to Brendel. Um, I hope you're ready for this, Brendel. I've removed the references to the director and the, 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 the person who did the score here. Um, the composer. Okay. Another Stephen King adaptation. Here we go. This brutal film borders on the brilliant, beautifully structured and edited with a chilling central performance by blank and an exceptional score by Blank, who also edited the picture, it turns up emotions and leaves the viewer stunned and depleted. Mike, I hope you're paying attention in case Brendel doesn't get it. You'll have the next clue. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, what do you think on this one? The scored and edited thing should be a clue, but I don't know who does both of those things. So I'm... Hmm. I, I don't know. I'm going to say The Shining. Okay, it's not The Shining, so we'll we'll eliminate that one, Mike, from your uh, your quiver of guesses. So I'll give Mike the second clue here. It says, a creepy, if disjointed, exploration of the nature of evil, but compared to its predecessor, it's also a bit of a disappointment. Mike, what do you make of that? Um... I'm buzzing in uh, st- uh, Jesse's selfie. No, no uh, need Jesse's to buzz selfie. in. It's just your turn uh, on this one. So the deprecating. Dr. Sleep. It, is, that what, is that what we're thinking? It is not Dr. Sleep. Okay. okay. The third clue goes to Brendel. Brendel, not wow. all the plot developments ring true, but moments carry a real chill. Even in a coma, blank can terrify a fellow patient almost to death, and it has more than enough thought-provoking material to command your interest. Hmm. Wow, are we going to get a lot to of the... comas in the in the Stephen King universe? Right, there? there's some themes. I was I was thinking about that as like a, a it's the vehicle that has replaced sort of like spirituality as a way to get like arcane knowledge. This is especially true in the Dead Zone. Is that it's like the coma is like the medical slash scientific way of accessing something that's in the brain. You know, 
right. instead of like a, a genie giving it to you or like a, a prophet or something like that. But it's yeah, the same, or rolling it's around exact in toxic waste. What, what was that? Or rolling around in like toxic waste to get your powers. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't know what film that is. Sorry. Okay, we're stumping. Okay, uh, Mike, I wasn't sure if I was going to have to go to this clue. Um, maybe neither of you have seen the fucking movie. I don't know. Uh, the final one, Mike. Do director blank and screenwriter blank really mean to suggest that the roots of genocide lie in homosexual desire? Oh, I know what it is now. That's a hell of a review, <laughs> ain't it? I don't know what have it is. Have you not seen this one? I don't one? know what it is. A coma and... I don't know what it is. Oh, no, I'm gonna pass. Uh, Jesse's Jesse's stinky socks pass. Okay. Brendel, do you know feet. it? So my my guess was apt pupil because of the just that particular yes. line. But there's nothing about a coma in that. I don't think so. I don't I don't know what the answer is. I'm not sure either. But it is it is apt pupil. I haven't seen the movie, oh, but really? apparently there must be a scene where Ian McKellen is in a coma. Oh, okay. Huh. I didn't. I, I I did not know that part. Okay. Look, that one was kind of a whiff. But I did prepare a backup in case you guys didn't get this one. Okay. So, Brendel, okay. you went first last time. Mike, you go first this time. Oh, all right. Although the film starts out with a fairly simple and seemingly innocent premise, Blank is no doubt one of the most twisting and chilling Stephen King stories ever brought to screen. Maybe they said twisted. I might have copied that wrong. Sorry. Twisting doesn't make sense. Or maybe it does. Um, I don't know. Give me a Stephen King yes. adaptation. You got to think of one. Misery. Pass. Okay, that is one, Jesse's, but that's not right. Jesse's butt crack. Well, no. misery. Okay. Jesse's butt Brindle, crack. the misery. second clue for you. The only thing that matters is the ending, says Blank, towards the end of the movie. He's talking about the writer's craft. Blank, despite the best efforts of his cast, sends this comment soaring into the ether of irony. Mm. That doesn't ring a bell. Mike? Okay. Um, is it the one where they had Johnny Depp in it with the garden? Is the garden? Aha! Remember that? Maybe we're on the right track. Remember you that? get the third clue, Mike. The ultimate test of one's tolerance for King's <laughs> self-aggrandizing self postulations about writer's block, obsessive fans, and the potentially frightening manifestations of the writer's id. It's just plain lousy. Okay. The secret garden. Oh, he's so close! Help him out, Brendel! Is it secret window? Secret window. Secret That's right. Window. Okay, I knew you'd get, you. You were right, though. Johnny there. Depp and uh, John Turturro. Yep. Really good performance by John Turturro. Yeah, Turturro. Great. Turturro's a fun guy. Yeah. Okay, that was good. Okay, I feel I feel good about that one. Um, finally, we've got a last segment. It's called the Peanut Gallery. This is where we ask, uh, we entreated our fans online to help us with some questions and comments about the film. Uh, the first one comes to us from Mystery Man sixty nine. Says. Did you guys like the TV show of that or no? I only saw an episode or two because my seventh grade English teacher showed them to the class. Gal really friggin' liked Anthony Michael Hall. Hey, Anthony Michael Hale. That's kind of fun to think about. What if that was what it was? Stupid. Okay. Never saw the show and I hate Anthony Michael Hall. Is that true? You got a beef with him? Yeah, he just looks stupid. Is it because of the name <laughs> thing that he just did? <laughs> <laughs> no, it has nothing to do with okay, that. Okay, I think it might. Uh, yeah, pretty much the same as Mike. I have not seen it. It doesn't look good to me. Um, Anthony Michael Hall will always be the kid from the breakfast club. Cause that's like the first thing I saw. That yeah. He was in. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it no, ran I, for I a long time. That, the show, so I don't I know think. how they handled it. It, it. it was on for a while. I think was, is it, it was is quite it based on the same, yeah. is it based on the same story? Sorry. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. They, well, they, they yeah. use stuff from that's... the book and stuff from the movie that wasn't in the book. 
Interesting. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine this being a... You know what? Actually, it's not hard to imagine this being a series. I can see in my mind exactly how they would do it as a series, and it's mm-hmm. maybe I wouldn't like it. Um, the cop helper. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's what it would be. Um, okay. And this is from a listener and super fan, I think, Chris James, big fan of the show. He says, my question for Brendel, uh, how much time in advance of the recording were you given to watch the movie? Oh, uh, Chris, a uh, good friend of ours. I listened to the Scanners episode. I really liked that. I thought it was good. So... Uh, I think I had pretty much the same experience as Chris. I had the standard uh, YKS 30 days notice, so about a month ago. But here's the thing. It was only like three weeks ago that I received the YKS movie review guest gift bundle. Uh, I had my Blu-ray copy of the movie. It had a CD of the soundtrack. Hardback okay. first edition copy of Stephen King. Well, Maybe it was signed. I'm not sure. A okay. hand curated bibliography of articles and scholarly resources about the dead zone. Uh, and, and this was curated by you guys really appreciate that. Um, but so it was a month's notice, but really only three weeks. I, I think Chris is probably asking cause he only got three weeks as well. And when he got his stuff, but I so, think that despite that, you guys are really trying your best and Chris just needs to chill out and enjoy himself. I think you're so right about that. And, and a lot of that stuff is just, I had just laying around the house. So it's not, it's not a big deal. I uh, just threw it together. Um, he did have another question, which is where does this rank for you on the list of Stephen King adaptations? Now that's a good question. Cause there's a lot of them as we just discovered. So many of them that they really can slip through the cracks of our minds when we're thinking about Stephen King adaptations. Um, yeah. Where does this rank for you guys in the pantheon of, of King King films? Mike? I mean, it's up there. Stephen King films are their, they're their own uh, separate uh, animal for me. It's like it's all, it's all uh, I mean, you got, uh, what did I say, Needful Things and uh, Salem's Lot and uh, the great Rob Lowe and Salem's Lot, the Return of Salem's Lot. Well, you've almost got the the big money, the the real like feature film adaptation. Of course, you've got the miniseries and all that, and that's a completely different thing. But you've got like the big yeah. budget and the small yeah. budget, and they're like they're totally different. But I mean, they're all a part of the same whole, right? I mean, yeah. um, what enjoy the what what are some of your favorites? Probably you probably like Carrie a lot, right, Mike? The Mist. The Mist is good. Yeah, the Mist was good. I don't know. Yeah. You not seen the mist, the, the Thomas Jane? You not seen the mist? I don't know if you'd like it, but it's uh, I like it. I think I, it's I, you'd, you'd like it. I liked Carrie a lot. I think Carrie's really good. I think that uh, the Shining is really really good. I know that Stephen King hates that one, and it's not yeah. really an adaptation of the book, but I love that movie. Um, I think that uh, you know you think about like a Stand by Me or a Shawshank Redemption, right? Um, you know those are those are both good movies. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a big Stephen King guy. Honestly, I haven't read any of his books. Uh, I'm, I never got into him as a writer. I think he has some good stories that have been adapted to the screen, but I'm not like, Oh, a Stephen King thing. I should check this out. I would be surprised if anyone is at this point in history, like, ah, the new Stephen King they're doing that. I mean, the dark tower didn't work. And that's like his most, you know, like, uh, th- that's the one that people who are fans of his, I think, love the most is the Dark Tower. And it sort of landed with a thud. So I don't think people are even that way about him. I, I, I mean, I hate to say yeah, somebody said that somebody said the Dork Tower and they <laughs> closed the doors on somebody it. said that somebody said that they said the Dork Tower to him. And he's much. like, oh, never mind. I got some stuff to do. He starts sleeping. Yeah, that that shit is totally <laughs> inscrutable to me. I, I never could get into that. Yeah, I uh, did. You guys see the new uh, It or It Chapter Two? Did you watch either of those? Mm-mm. Boy, they are a fucking. I watched. The, I watched the first one, but not like a second. They are a bummer. Sad movies. Uh, big bummer to me. Pets. The the new Pet Cemetery also a big bummer. Not good to me. Um, we watched In the Tall Grass on Netflix. That was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if you guys know anything about that. That's one to check out. Um, I have not seen Doctor Sleep. 
Uh, but yeah, I love I do I do love Shawshank. Uh, hey, uh, is it scary? No, but I like it. Hey, Mike, have you seen Christine? That's the uh, John yeah. Carpenter. Yeah, right? that's a great. It's a great, great yeah, film. So that one's up there. A lot, a lot yeah. of good stuff from the from this old crazy guy. And for more Stephen King, check out his posts on Twitter. Very good. I think you'll find <laughs> that they're very interesting. Honestly, equally frightening to a lot of his films. Um, God, but, that's true. Uh, so many great uh, celebrities, isn't it? Yeah, it really <laughs> is. Twitter, yeah. You I've really got a whole get list. to see how cool they are. Just celebs, yeah. <laughs> uh, Brendel, thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, t- talking to us about this film. I think the Brendel episodes are some of our best ones that we ever do because oh. people are... Um, I think I, I personally look I look forward to the Brendel episodes. I say I say this all the time. If it ain't a Brendel episode, it's shit. It's dog shit. It's not oh, worth doing. On. It's not worth listening. That to. maybe oversells it a little bit and maybe puts some of the other folks down and as well as ourselves who look, do the other 10,000 episodes a year. I think that these are just as shit as all the other episodes. So don't, <laughs> yeah. don't get take it out. on me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Brendel. Yeah, thanks for having out. me on, guys. Appreciate Why it. Why not another Brendel? Let's hear it. Bye, everybody. Later. Mm.